Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show tonight. I am Seahawks Brendan Nelson, joined by Brandon of the Hawks Nest. And we've got our first happy postgame show of the season. We've got our first postgame show after a victory. So it's going to be a little different than our show last week. Definitely going to be the feels just a little bit different. I think people's moods is going to be a lot better. And... Hey, bottom line is we needed it. We needed it more than we thought we were going to need it, and we got it. So, Brandon, we're going to break it down tonight. I hope you're ready for that. I hope you are ready to Let's finally go. get into a Seahawks regular season W. And a fun one at that, Brandon. we got an entertaining game on top of it being a, a good result for our Seahawks. Okay, so let's uh, start from kind of a distant like you know a, a bird's eye view of things thinking about this game you win 37 to 31 in overtime you have a 10 point lead in the fourth quarter Detroit comes back ties it up with no time left and then you never let Detroit touch the ball in overtime back and forth crazy game kind of like last year's game against Detroit some similarities so in a macro sense how are you feeling after that game I think I feel definitely remarkably better from where we were last week. I, I think the last week was notable for the folks that brought it up as far as how bad things were were looking. I mean, Coach Carroll acknowledged this in a press conference that he – or not press conference, but in a 710 interview that he did uh, a couple of days ago or really just one day ago, talking about, yeah, that was a little bit of a different loss. That wasn't just, oh, that's a bad – that was one that hit a little differently. So this was a very important win to come out of just in a general sense in that it's it you had a season that could could very well have hung in the balance there a little bit if it started to get a bit of that momentum. A game of football is about momentum seasons are about momentum and they can shift in a certain way and you start going down the line and you just can't stop it and it's almost like no matter what you do you can't stop it um but this was just a a, a good win a great win overall uh i thought that just it, small mind sense of it i thought obviously the offense carried the day here gino at the head of the class of that though there's going to be many people for us to break down within this um and the defense though it continued to give up a lot of easy air yardage out there, did make some adjustments across the board in certain small areas, was able to continue to keep the run game stopped up here, and at least created the turnovers where that was a part that was certainly missing there in the first week. I think that's a pretty good way to sum things up. Um, offense was obviously fantastic, better than I think anybody expected this offense to be in this game. Absolutely. And the defense kind of looked the way I thought they were going to look this year, which is not really good, but they would make enough plays for you to have an opportunity to win the game. Like I said before the season started, I think we're going to be a below average defense, but we're going to force a lot of turnovers. That's exactly what we got in that game. Agreed. I think when you look at blueprint, whatever term you want to apply, like you're talking about there, I'm in the same mindset. It's a bit of why I've pushed a little bit more for going pressure based in their looks and, and uh, bringing that on a little bit more than you have in years past, not to the point that you become a league you, you run at the league's highest rate or you're in some top five rate, but that you're not top bottom five rate either. And, and that you can manufacture stuff within that so that those air yards that are there will probably be there whether you're on the soft zone or whether you run a little bit of the tighter stuff, right? You're going to give up the, about the same amount of air yards, but at least on the other side, when you're running some aggressive principles, you can have some good things happen. Uh, good things like turnovers or interceptions, pick sixes, as was in this game. And uh, I think we got to see that on play. So this this was why a little bit more why you take the encouragement, even with the defense not necessarily bred into your as you're talking about being as 
up to snuff um, as some would like them to be. This is a little bit more closer line, though, to what you kind of did. We were realistic about where we saw this defense. We never saw them as being world breeders. We just need them to get up to around middle of the road state. And um, that was why this is a little bit more okay to take this one versus last week where there was no middle of the road. There was nothing you could hang your hat on. It was all bad all the way down outside of stopping the run. Yeah, and nothing that the Seahawks did do will ever make what they did in week one okay, but there are things you can do to start working towards something better. And it is true. I, I think some people hit this a little too hard sometimes, but there is that saying, you know, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And you would rather finish strong than uh, start strong. And we see this every year. Every year there's a team that the first month of the season season looks like they're never going to lose. Like it's just impossible for that team to lose. And that team always goes through like a month later in the season where they don't even really look average. Like right now through two games, the Cowboys look like they're just never going to lose a game. But you know they're going to at some point be playing far less than what we see. I think this is even more so the case in recent NFL history where there's less consistency. I really do feel like there's less consistency from week to week in what you see from pretty much every team. So I, I think that idea of going uh, start to finish dominant is just really becoming a thing of the past. Agreed. And um, I, I do think that you're, you're, you're also speaking to a little bit of like the whole maybe kind of the peak early theory. Where you know you can you can be at your best at an early part of the year, whereas you really want to be at your best later on in the year. I think you would agree that in Carroll's time here, as hard as we were a little bit on him in the first week to give him those places, where as I say, he's got places he does good things and places that are laudable, places where he's one of the better coaches in that realm of getting this kind of thing done. Um, this would be one of those areas. Uh, I just lost my train of thought. What were you just saying? My goodness. Oh, oh, I was just saying that you're not seeing teams. I feel like in the, even like the nineties, you saw teams that would just every game play at a really high level. They were just consistently putting it all out there. Oh, you're not seeing that as much anymore. Yeah. I was going to say, you would agree with this where coach Carroll, I think in a lot of the ways he does this and it's purposeful, for instance, how they manage injury situations throughout the course of the season. But I think there's also a way in how he's trained the teams up. Like maybe he doesn't run as hard a training camp because he doesn't want to tap the bodies out to where maybe he has them running grade A in the first couple of games, but then he loses them by game 15 or something. You know, he's trying through an approach here, I guess, what long way of saying this, Brendan, through his approach of let me get the team playing at its best at the end of the year, in whatever right. form that may be for whatever particular talent of team that you may have. Okay, so before we start getting into the particulars, we got a couple donos to take a look at here. DJ Jimenez, thank you for the $1.99. My ski mask is itchy. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about how unpleasant it would be to wear a ski mask in an indoor stadium with like 70,000 people in it. Yeah, that, that's a tough, especially three hours. You know, yeah. I mean, you got to, there's a couple moments there where you're taking it off and there's just sweat coming down your face and you're going, oh, I, this was, could we have just taken a, could we have just wore a hat? Could we just done a hat maybe? Does it have to be the whole mask? <laughs> yeah, and and I guess the reason why they did it, like uh, Chauncey Gardner-Johnson, who is now sadly out for the season, said, we're doing the ski mask because we're like the bad guys of the NFL. Since when are the Lions the bad guys of the NFL? That doesn't yeah. make any sense. Uh, I, I know that these teams are always looking for the underdog status and trying to find and grab onto that, but this is one where that's not going to apply. There's That's one of those franchises that I think many fans across the league 
kind of root for or hope that they will do their best because you know they have had it hard for many different years. It's not like they've been a team that's perennially been great to live the high life. So uh, I I don't think it, anybody that I've ever heard reference Lions fans as being anything but good people. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know where that comes from, but uh, whatever, whatever you got to do, I guess. But uh, I would definitely recommend not doing that for the next Lions home game. You're going to get that one didn't work. crowd. That yeah. didn't work. What's that one? Maybe put that one to bed. Rumbler podcast. Thank you for the dollar ninety nine. Come in, your trap. Take over your trap. It's probably some music lyrics that I'm not familiar to because I don't listen to music anymore. Come in, your trap. Take over your trap. Okay. Okay. You I said it better than I did. <laughs> I give it a shot, Rumbler. I don't know the song either, but that sounds about right. Uh, Mike McGee. Thank you for the five dollars. Do injuries like Barkley, Chubb, and Burrow playing badly change win loss expectations? For the Hawks. Also, thoughts about the Rams and 49ers. Tough. All right. So let's uh, start with the first half of that, the part about these injuries. Um, Well, first off, the first two guys, uh, we know for sure, me and I'm sure Brendan can be able to say with a lot more positive certainty of, you know, those are big, impactful injuries. One injury in football is not going to make or break any kind of NFL club. It's not. It's, of course, the, the team and what's going on. Now, a multitude of injuries can get you. But if there were select teams with select players who if they were to lose them, it changes the nature and look of that team in a substantial way. I would point to Saquon Barkley on the Giants. I would point to Nick Chubb on the Cleveland Browns. Those guys are absolutely elemental to what makes those offenses run to whatever degree they run at. It's not like the Browns have been, even with that really good offensive line, Brennan, even with bringing in Deshaun Watson, it's not like they've been able to be tremendously productive in how many points they're putting up on the board. Still, he was what made that offense go. You remove him now. I mean, they're bringing in Kareem Hunt, it sounds like, who's been good in that team in that offense before. So, I, you know, that maybe they're not going to miss a huge beat there. But Chubb is, to me, one of the best three or four backs in the league. Um, and he's been that way for a while. He's hard as hell to bring down. He's the guy that's the exact back you want to face in this era now where guys can't tackle because he's going to make you tackle every inch of them. I don't know about you, Brendan, but I, I can't hit um, – I can't hammer on the safety in that situation. There's a lot of people that are trying to call that safety as being dirty there for that hit on Chubb. To me, it's like, this guy's one of the hardest guys to bring down in the sport, man. You know, I'm going to do everything but bite him to try to get him down. I'm not trying to hurt the guy, but like he is what he is on that. He's just hard dude to bring down. He's tough as hell. Um, Barkley, same way. Giants offense hasn't been particularly good this year when they had Barkley. Um, they definitely take a step back now not having Barkley. So, you know, you're they're in remarkably different states now without those two guys. Burrow will have to see juries out. I, it's so early on. I don't know if he's going to continue to play at this spot. He's coming off of the um, calf injury that he sustained in training camp. So, you know, maybe he's still rounding kind of in because I think he came back from that a little early. So let's kind of see if he's still at that place. Um, I wouldn't say overall, though, Mike, it would change my outlook on win or loss necessarily. I still I still kind of land around where I would land, hopefully, um, with this team and my early preseason judgments on them You know, for the most part. Um, there is a part of me actually would want to pull back almost a little bit, but the, that helps us. That definitely helps us substantially in two games that are going to be very close games probably when it comes down to it. Well, if we get to play the Bengals with no Joe Burrow, we better win that game. That yeah. becomes a completely oh, different game. So that yeah. would, Mike. Yeah, Mike, that would change that substantially if you do get to play them. But I don't know if he is playing and rolling. If he'll necessarily be at the same uh, struggling level that he's that he's been at. He still has all of his weapons on the outside, so he's not been. De- you know, things could come together very quickly. I guess is what I'm saying. You know, in that Bengals situation, uh, Rams playing the Niners tough. Um, I'm not surprised that they did. 
Um, the Niners run a lot of outside zone and they'll hammer you in that aspect of things. Uh, the, the, the 49ers will do that. I'm sorry. The Rams run, like to run that three, four with the, the four eye technique. Like we like to run Brendan. This is the thing we talked about when we were bringing up a couple weeks ago or his month ago. Why did the Seahawks no longer have as much dominance over the Niners? Is it because Russell Wilson, Wilson isn't here? Well, no, my contention of it is that you went from the four, three to the three, four, and you went to the three, four defensive principles of the Rams, which has those defensive ends aligned in what's called four eye technique or four inside technique when they're in a three, four. And uh, the Rams commit way more to playing their three, four than we do. And so that does create now natural leverage win situations for the tackles on the defensive ends, because the tackle has the defensive end on his inside shoulder naturally prior to the snap. And that just, if you're running an outside, if I'm out running an outside zone, then to my outside shoulder, it's that much easier for me to get that block laid and seal that guy off in the particular play. So the fact that the, that the Rams um, played the Niners tough. Yeah. Uh, but the Niners end up being able to lean back on the run game and have that be enough to get them through. I I'm sure that they, you know, they got pressed tightly by the Rams. The Rams have surprised people, but I just don't see that as being something because there's this whole narrative out there. Now the Rams, well, the Rams are better. The Rams are better. I don't I buy guess. the Rams are better. I don't buy the better. You know, they're one on one after two weeks. Let's see where they're after six or seven weeks, Brennan. I'll, I'll eat crow at that time and own it if I've misjudged them in that way. But this team leaned heavily into the tank. I don't care what their fans say or how mad they get at us saying that. And they all seem to get mad at me saying that. I get their comments every time in my chat. I don't care. It's it's what they did. And there's a lot of evidence for this. I'm not saying it blindly. I'm not the only one saying it. It's There's a reason many are. And I think it's going to be what it's going to be when it's all settled this year. Stafford's playing out of his mind great, which is awesome for him to be tapping in and playing so well. But I don't know that it's sustainable myself. What do you think? I cover um, all that. Yeah. Sorry about, uh, sorry about my camera, by the way, guys. I don't know why it's just all of a sudden freaking out on me again. Um, both of them this time. So I'm starting to think it's a problem with StreamYard, not my actual camera. But Ooh. whatever, I'll deal with it later. Um, I think that I, I kind of understand why the Rams are playing well, at least. Like, they've got the McVay, they've got Stafford. There's a little bit going on there. How are the card? The, the thing that really is confusing me, how do the Cardinals look competent? Like, like they've got Jonathan Gannon and Josh Dobbs, and they, they don't even have Buda Baker right now. Mm. How is that team playing decent football? Like, this was supposed to be a throwback to, remember the 2019 Dolphins? When they mm -hmm. started the season, they lost every game by, like, four touchdowns. Oh, and, yeah. And then Fitzmagic kind of came in and saved them a little bit at the end. But early on, it was the most blatant tank job ever. That was the uh, Brian Flores getting paid to throw games thing. Right. Like, that's what this was supposed to be. How are the Cardinals looking competent? That's what I'm trying to figure out. You, uh, I don't know. I don't have an answer on that with why, why the Cardinals looked as good because they shouldn't either on the other side of it. And maybe it is just the teams are taking both of these particular teams lightly because they're as well aware of it as we are of the, you know, the problems at play. But, um, I do think much like what we're talking about here with the Rams, that the Cardinals end up sliding into being what they are. Um, it's, it'll be a nice, maybe start a good building a building of their story, but I don't know that it's sustainable, especially Buda Baker now going down in the IR for them. I, it, it is good out the gate. They haven't had the toughest competition either, right? So it was the Washington in week one. And then I know Washington's 2-0, and but it's it's Cardinals and Broncos are those wins. Mm, they, they, they won in Denver in September. That That's worth something to me. That's no even, joke. Even when Ross is the quarterback, though? I mean. Yeah. Don't you remember 2010? They had Kyle Orton quarterback. They were, I think, the worst team in the league that year. And they blew us out in September. No, they I'm with Last year, they won both of their September home games. Like, 
Denver oh, in they? September always wins their home games. So I'm, I'm giving a little bit of credit to, uh, to uh, Washington here. I think they're all, all right. right. I'll give them a little bit of props then on that one. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll see where those, those teams lie in and at the end of the day, I I'm looking forward to playing the Rams again. I don't think it's going to be as close a game next time. We'll see if I'm wrong, but uh, uh, I think they're going to be one to, to get them back for that week one, week one game eventually down the road. But uh, the schedule gets easier now, Brandon does not with Barkley and Chubb at this point from your perspective. Yeah, I, I would say so. And don't forget Jack Thompson last night broke his ankle. That's right. That's JC right. Horn on IR. There we go. Yeah. And there was certainly, there were some moments last night though. It was a really tough game for the saints. Uh, there were some moments last night you could see that they were able to get into the cornerback uh, corners of corner, the backup corners in there. You know, Henderson's not quite found his footing there with the Panthers. And we'll be talking about this in the game preview on Thursday. But uh, certainly that that Panther team, though, the defense looks really tough. It looks like you, you know, aren't going to be playing the offense playing in the same way they were playing last year when they rolled through there with Donald. Let's see here. Kasra Salari, thank you for the dollar ninety nine. The Bengals game looks a little less scary now. I mean, there's no way this is who Joe Burrow is, right? Like this is very obviously related to the injury. It's not like we think that Joe Burrow turned into Tim Tebow all of a sudden, right? Like, uh, no, I really don't. I, I, I think you got looking in the context of this too. Week one was a, a downpour. You got a, a Bengals attack that they want to hit you in running the ball. That's their their whole or passing the ball. That's the way that they want to go after you. Um, that they'll run a little bit for show, so to speak. But that's the whole deal of what they do. And so the first week, when you look at the twenty four three against the Browns, it's you're going against you have a Browns team that's got Nick Chubb at that time, an offensive line built to run the ball and that kind of so, so in a rainy conditions kind of thing, a windy conditions kind of situation. The Browns are going to have the advantage there, even though the Bengals have more pure talent going into that game one. And then we look at game two in the loss. They lost by three points to the Ravens. Ravens very well might be one of the two, three best teams in the AFC when it's all said and done this upcoming season. Um, when we look at this, you know, in retrospect. Um, now, as far as Burrow being better in both of these two games, not playing at his best, that's a valid criticism. But again, this I come back to, yeah, he had a major... He had a major calf strain coming out of training camp, and it's probably still bothering him. You know, he's probably doing that tough guy thing where you're going to fight through it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to play at your best. You know, and we saw this with Russ at times. Russ would play and be out there like he had when, what, 2017 with a high ankle sprain and stuff, but you could see that he was diminished. He could not put the same pop on the football. He couldn't move around in the pocket in the same way, and it reduced him as a quarterback. And that seems to be what's going on to me to Burrow right now a little bit. Don't know if that'll be as affecting in two to three, two more weeks, you know, three more weeks. Yeah. Um, I, I do wonder if they put him on IR though. I think that's very possible because you don't want to mess around with that guy. That guy's the franchise. You wouldn't think so, especially after you just signed with that contract, Brendan. You don't want this to be a problem that persists with him on down the road. I, if I'm not mistaken, didn't uh, Aaron Rodgers have a, a few different moments of calf calf muscle calf injury things go on with him so I, if i was the Bengals here and it is a situation where he's just trying to fight through it i'd highly recommend to them that i'm not just because it would benefit us but because you do have to look at that a little long term that guy is what drives that franchise i mean he is to me right there with mahomes is one of the two best quarterbacks in the sport and so you to me can't afford to just go well we're just going to try to rock him out there we need this year again let's go and no give him the four weeks let him let him sit on it and then try to bring him back for the stretch the stretch run. You know, you need him in the playoffs and healthy. And uh yeah, that team's good enough to where they can get a two and two record through that time, or at least one and three through that time. And 
you know, give him a chance then at the end. But yeah, they're also in two, so they might not. They may feel impelled like they already lost the room for air, Brennan. Yeah, if they put him on IR, he also gets a fifth week off because they have their bye week right after the next four games. So I, I kind of feel like that's where this ends up going. Makes sense. Definitely could make some sense if they if there is that effect in there. You know, hard to say, but if that is if he is still being kind of really like, oh, it's it's still biting him. We got to just let it let it rest, let it cool down. Uh, feed me more Legos. Thank you for the five dollars. Does the Artie Burns signing raise questions marks for Reek or Mike Jackson? Well, I think Mike Jackson's just in the doghouse. Like, like we did not have him out there for a single snap on defense in a game where Tariq Woolen got hurt. That's crazy to me. Remember, this guy was a training camp darling. They wouldn't shut up about how good he looks. Yeah, I think it speaks to the fact that like we saw in the last two preseason games with Mike Jackson to Brendan's point, Jackson w- did not just look simply, well, he gave up a couple of tough completions. He looked completely lost <laughs> out there in the preseason. And it is odd considering that in the training camp, they said that he was almost subdominant at that point. I don't know what to make of that other than, yeah, Mike Jackson's not been you know, held up in, in high esteem right now by the coaching staff and their viewpoint of him. Um, yeah, Artie Burns, I think, has, has an effect here in a couple different places. Um, he is there for reinforcement. You know, if something with um, Tariq Woolen continues to persist with the shoulder or you need him on the outside, certainly. I think as well, though, he's just as much there for what you have going on in the slot because now that we have Witherspoon firmly set over on the outside corner, you look over to the slot is another spot now that maybe the the next place in coverage to look at dealing with and trying to find some improvement from within there. And Kobe Bryant has been along with Julian Love, in my opinion, of two of the more underperforming guys in the secondary through the first couple of weeks. Two of the guys that are the bigger reasons you have quarterbacks throwing for over 300 yards in those first couple of weeks and how they've played their zone coverage responsibilities. And so uh, I, I think that there's room there to go and find a guy like Burns who can play better than that. And Burns showed in that Packers preseason game, part of the reason I didn't like cutting him in the first place was that you know, he's such a good overall player. He'll get up there and tackle. He can play zone. He can play some man. You know, he's he's multiple. You can go zone. You can you can go a uh, slot. You can go outside with him. I, I feel like you got a lot of room to move him in a lot of different places. So you know, I think it's also as much about the uh, Femi more Legos, the slot with my with um, Artie as it is with the outside stuff. Yeah, yeah. He, um, I think we played him in the slot a pretty good amount in that Green Bay preseason game, if I recall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how this happens, though. I don't know how a guy goes from a guy who was decent last year to training camp MVP to we're literally we'd rather play anybody over you. It's kind of crazy how fall he fe- how quickly he fell off a cliff. The only thing I can try to smartly point towards would be that it's one of the bigger positions that exists on the football field that's really driven by confidence or lack thereof. And if you lose your confidence at the cornerback position, it's it's one where just it's hard to get it back. You know, um, receiver can be like, okay, the, the quarterback's going to throw it back to me another play here. I can get my rhythm back. You know, running back's going to get another carry. Uh, a guy who tries to go after the quarterback from the edge is going to get another snap to go after and get that. that. But with a corner, it's kind of like you get beat and then you come back to the next snap and you're like, oh, now I'm going to get beat again. You know, it's not really as much. It doesn't start to feel like as much an opportunity to go out there and it's like, oh, they're just going to start to expose me now. Uh, I wonder with Mike if that's a little bit of what's going on here is just that he got his confidence shook a little bit through that those preseason games. It was a couple of his worst games. I mean, as a hawk, he came here his first year, played the started the last two games, and he was strong in those final two games. Not last season, but the season prior to last season, and then last season, like you said, he was he was okay. He was functional out there for us in it. 
but um, it does seem to be where it's at right now. Yeah. Um, as for the Reek Woolen side of things, they said he, they basically said he's not hurt. It just hurts, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not an injury. He's just in pain. Mm-hmm. And you you don't know how long that's going to be a problem. It's hard to diagnose. It's hard to put a timetable on it. So I think it could have something to do with that as well. Yeah, it does. It, it's I've I've long thought that Burns should be your fifth corner on this team anyway. So uh, I think it's just good that he's here. It's the insurance is nice to have, and you see that he was even playing this last week. Um, but with the versatility, flexibility it gives you, um, you're going to need that over the course of a long season here. And uh, yeah, I think it's. It's good that they've done this, and it's the right thing to do with this. Even if Mike Jackson was playing well, in my opinion, Brendan, I think that Artie Burns should be on the roster. All right. So with all that out of the way, let's go ahead and start talking about this game that we just played. And by the way, I'm, I'm giving up on the camera. I cannot figure it out. I don't know why it's giving me problems. No worries. But I, I give up on it. I'm I'm, I'm just so done with it for now. I, I It's got to be on StreamYard side. But anyway, so let's start with this uh, Detroit Lions offense against our defense because that was the side with a little more bumps and bruises I guess you could say that was the side with a little more areas where things didn't go so well let's have our dessert last let's eat dinner okay. and then have dessert you know I, I think that's the, the best way to go about things you gotta have the vegetables before you can get to the chocolate that's right yeah. um yeah so this was a a game where there was a lot of similarities to last season in the way that the Lions were going to go after you coming into this game Brendan you had a guy in Jared Goff who you know, it, he wants to keep things simple and easy. He loves attacking the middle of the field with Amon St. Brown, especially at the head of that. Um, they were going to maintain some level of balance, so they were still going to be able to challenge your run defense to make sure that, that that improvement we saw from last week was indeed not just a one-game thing but could continue and, and carry through. Um, and they came out, and they were able to, to mix it up a little bit with the run and pass. They didn't have a lot of success in running the ball, but they found enough – yards in there to keep drive sustained they were moving chains they were scoring points on you um and your defense was kind of on their heels for a long part of this game um in my opinion in in really looking at the tape and and kind of thinking about it i think that there was a couple of little adjustments you did defensively there weren't major swings this week that you did that were last week you went okay we're doing all of this over here now we're going to do this over on this other side of things i think things still did remain relatively the same the place that the little spots i've seen on tape especially now watching the l22 brendan is that you did have your corners in more of a press look situation less of the off coverage stuff giving them that the, the easy read to the quarterback there didn't seem to be as much pure cover three here. There seemed to be more of the man-based coverage concepts throughout this game, especially to Woolen side. You got to give them credit in this game where they, or not Woolen, uh, Witherspoon side, where they were really um, letting him run man for a lot of the, the game. They mixed it up. He ran some zone too, but they they at least didn't just have him just running full zone all the time, which is my worry about if they put Witherspoon out there that they would try to lean into that too much and not take advantage of what he does his best, which is man-based coverage concepts. But Brendan. The turnovers are the big part of this. You were able to generate three. Yunchenna Nuosu made a fantastic play in the backfield where you can see him tra- tearing at the ball, trying to tear it out of the, the ball carrier's hands. Uchenna continues to be a good all-around player for us. Um, but then really where there's a couple of plays to me that stand out here, Brendan, that are going to be the plays that I really get caught up in my mind as we go forward because I'm hoping that the coaching staff also finds themselves getting kind of swayed by these plays. You have the fourth and two play right around the midfield stripe where where you have Witherspoon up in press look he's up in a press look and he's going to run man and but he's in non press actually he's in slight off coverage 
And Goff comes up to the line of scrimmage, Brennan, and he sees a cover three look by just the looks of things, meaning he's got the corners and off coverage. He's got the safety playing center field and deep center field. It looks cover three. He's got a fourth and two. So he's thinking, okay, maybe they run, they play the short routes. I've got a deep crosser coming from Witherspoon's side to that side of the field. So I'll hit the deep crosser. It'll be wide open. The receiver will run the first corner off on the bottom side of that. And then the, the crosser will come over the other side. And Witherspoon being the guy on that crosser initially will as well drop into a cover three depth. So he'll just remove himself from the play. And now it'll probably be a linebacker on that receiver on that crosser coming back across the field. That's the way the Seahawks defense would typically run that. That's what was probably informing simple Jared what was going on. Um, but what Seattle ran was man coverage concepts there instead. And as well, Jared's anticipating he's only going to get a four-man front on that. Seahawks are going to drop everybody into zone, right? Brendan, you're not going to blitz on fourth and two. Yet Jordan Brooks blitzes, comes in on the blitz. So now you have a combination of two good things happening on this play that don't normally occur in a Seahawks defense. You have a man-based concept going on on a, on a crossing route, which is one of the big killers of cover three. And the Seahawks beater plays, the, the, long, the deep crossing route is one of the ones at the head of the stack. So now you're running man base. So you've got Witherspoon in the back pocket, the receiver doing what he does best. You've got Brooks coming up in a blitz, knocking the running back right back into Goff. So now Goff's moving his feet. He hates doing that. Now it ain't so simple for him. And now he doesn't get off a very good throw. The player's legs become entangled, Brendan, um, and you have a, you have a non-conversion. And really quickly, you come back then um, about another series or two later in the game. You bring up Trey Brown. Again, up in a press look, not in that off coverage, dropping to depth, but coming up in more of a press-based look at least, even if they're not actually laying a jam up at the line of scrimmage. He comes on a blitz. What does it do? What does that cause? He gets in there, gets the sack, because the lines aren't used to you blitzing, ain't blitz used to you bringing it. Then you come back the next play, you bring three guys up into the box, three additional guys up at the line of scrimmage next to your down lineman, showing a blitz to Jared once again, who just got sacked. You know he's freaking out in the back of his head the second he sees that. But instead, you drop two back, you bring the other one, and he throws a pick six. Three moments in this game where you did different things than how you've done things prior over a year's span. And, and that's what we were harping on as much as anything else last week was, hey, what we're trying to do is just get, we don't, it's not calling people's heads here. We're, we're calling for change. We want to see fixings. We want to do some, do something different, do something than what you've done constantly prior before. And that's in the, this game, these three major moments to me that defensively really is where in a day, a day where you couldn't stop much defensively, where you did your best things was when you had done stuff that was different than how you'd done it prior. And I know it's long-winded in that, Brendan, but it's it's as much as anything, the most important part for me taking away of this game is that the coaches maybe get a little bit more guidance and direction to leaning into that type of stuff more, to seeing the benefits and the fruits of it. Not that it's all perfect, not that it's going to be some game-changing thing for this defense, but it will help it to improve, in my opinion. Yeah, that, that's uh, one thing that I keep saying whenever I'm talking about the Seahawks defense and trying to go to more man-based concepts. The teams in the NFL that run man the most run it about half the time. Mm -hmm. So even if you run man more than anyone else, you're still going to be running zone a lot. We're yeah. not asking, I don't think we're asking this team to abandon zone completely. That would be, no. you can't do that. And like, like next week, we're going to be playing a team where we're probably going to want to play zone a lot because mm -hmm. man defense creates problems against Bryce Young, as we saw a little bit last night. That's about the only thing 
that um, creates a problem when you're playing Bryce Young at the moment, honestly. But um, <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. struggling. <clears throat> but um, we're we're starting to see a move towards that. I like that. I think there was some indication that we were just waiting to have the right corners out there. We didn't totally trust the guys that we had before Witherspoon got out there to be able to do it. Now we've momentarily lost Woolen, so you could say we're kind of you know in the same position, but. The point I'm trying to make here is we're not asking for this team to run man 100% of the time. The point is to throw different things at the team and confuse them. And I think that's a good chunk of what we saw because as this game went on, early in this game, I felt like it was the exact same defense we had um, last week. But um, as this game went on, we started to see some meaningful pressure for the first time all year. Um, we, we started to see, we're actually really good at making plays in the backfield comparing to other teams in the NFL right now, which is pretty surprising all all things considered, I think. And there was a, I don't know, you just watch a guy like Witherspoon play and it just looks so different than Mike Jackson or Kobe Bryant or even Trey Brown, who I know played good yesterday overall, but it still just looks so different. And it does remind you that in order for this defense to succeed, we do need to get these great players out there. And this defense has a chance to work at least somewhat. Yeah, I agree with what you saw from him as well. I'm I'm wrapping up a Witherspoon video that I hope to have out tomorrow um, in regards to his first game, looking at the All-22 tape and how he did play. And uh, he was great, Brendan. You know, his score got dinged for four completions. One of those completions I don't think was on him. Another one was for very, like, five-yard gain. Then you got the flea flicker play, which is going to happen to a rookie playing his first game. And you got the back shoulder throw, which is another one of those going to happen to a rookie. Hell, that'll happen. Even really good cornerbacks that are sticky in coverage, because that's what the quarterback's doing is attacking that sticky coverage. It's almost a throw that if it's thrown right, it's really hard to defend, especially with the way that uh, Goff threw it in that particular game. But he's really tight in coverage. Brendan, the man stuff showed up on the tape. You know, he's right there step for step. And uh, he's going to be a tackler in the run game. I know that we don't often talk about, and, and it's, it doesn't get people excited to talk about this, but you, people got to consider this a little bit more than him, than any other cornerback. And that is that this guy is going to be a force in the run game. This guy is going to be a force in helping the run game. And I know it's a cornerback and an outside cornerback I'm saying that about, and that doesn't add up for a lot of people because you don't see many of those. But that is what he's going to bring to the table. In the tape that you're going to see that I'm going to show tomorrow, you're going to see this guy throwing receivers off of him or trying to block him, who's just staying unblocked, who's trying to become an impact in the run game, who's got that desire, that heart, that tenacity, that feisty enough to want to get in there. Um, he's going to be that kind of dude out there. And yeah. that's, that is rare, Brendan, because you see these corners on the other side. I'm watching the tape on the other side, and there'll be a later video I'll do this week about the Seahawks offense. And, you know, you're seeing guys making you, – you, you've, you've, heard, you've heard of that, like, um, thing where receivers and cornerbacks come to that, like, common ground thing before a game, right? I'm not going to block you up super hard. But then you got to also – we're going to have this unsaid thing where you're also not trying too hard in the run game right? Like what happens, happens in the passing attack. I'm going to try to beat you. You're going to try to stop me. But when it comes to run game, I'm going to put my arms out. You're going to put your arms out and we're just going to come to this kind of, you know, common ground, right? You've heard of that, right? Or not. I mean, it's, it's just, it's a thing that's out there in the NFL. Um, and it's, he doesn't do any of that. He's he, there's no common ground with him. Like he's going to, he's going to be angry and mean about it. Um, and he was all over the tape in the run game. He's going to be sensational in that aspect. And the Seahawks already, like you just mentioned, 
one of the best teams start one of the best teams in the NFL right now in stopping the run. We've got some problems in the secondary that are valid issues, and I'm going to continue to point at them until they continue to try to find some actual fixes back there. But when it comes to stopping the run, they have definitely found some solutions here early on this season up front in how they're playing it. Their gap integrity is phenomenal. And like you said, even an added extra cherry part to the stopping the run so far this year is the penetration, getting guys into the backfield, actually getting some TFLs. Even Bobby Wagner, Brendan, getting some yeah. TFLs. Yeah, Cam Young with the TFL. I wasn't giving him but like one the whole season. I'm and dying, I, I, man, I, I swear I noticed him in a positive way in this game. Yeah, he played. He played okay. For he was wasn't in a lot, but he was for a good for much like with Witherspoon. You know, the guys playing the first game didn't play any training camp, no preseason games, no first game. So it's for for being that 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 your sort of first taste of things. It's uh, a, a good a good initial impression. All right. So you mentioned Bobby Wagner just now. So let's talk about that for a second. Through two games, he is generally considered by a lot of sites. I've seen PFF talk about this. I've seen I think ESPN talking about this. He's been through two games, the best run defender in the NFL by mm. many metrics. And by the way, Nwosu's right behind him. So we've got mm. a couple of guys up there. And it's allowed this run defense to flip things very quickly, much quicker than I thought. Now, I think a part of that is because we're easy to pass on. So teams aren't really sticking to the run as much as you might expect. I think there is some, some of that going on there. But I think our yards per carry average allowed is like three... One or something, it's low. So it's not just a matter of total yards. It's also about efficiency. We are forcing opposing run games to be very inefficient. So Bobby's obviously a big part of it. Um, but what what else do you see going on here? Because on in theory, we didn't do a lot to address our run defense. We got Draymond Jones, who is not known as a very good run defender. Jaron Reed is our nose tackle, very undersized. And we didn't even have Mike Morris out there. Like, how is what are you seeing that has transformed this run defense from historically bad to through two games anyway, historically good? Well, it's certainly a, a multitude of things. Um, let's first start with the Bobby Wagner aspect of this. I and you can confirm this. I hammered this at the time of his signing, and I was consistent throughout it that he was going to exponentially help our run game out because. He is a guy whose instincts are so smart and so on it. It's not just to say, okay, he's an older player with a big brain. It, you're, if you're just thinking of that with Bobby, you're you know missing the point with it. It's, it's that instinctually he's going to be two to three steps faster than the guy next to him. And that's not to, to, to put you in a guy like Jordan Brooks. It's any linebacker next to him in the sport. He knows what he's seeing. He ain't going to get fooled. In the run game, he's on every little detail. And he's as sure a tackler as you're going to find. And I would offer a little bit too with this, Brendan, that this type of defense might be kind of freeing him up even a little bit more so than the 4-3 did at times to allow him moments to be a little more splashy in how he plays the run and the ability to get back in there in some of those tackle for loss kind of situations. But he was that that was all over his tape last year, still with the Rams for, and it was a place that nobody was really, everybody was so caught up into him being unable to cover that nobody was wanting to kind of pay attention to that. But I was sitting there going, man, no, this is going to be a huge benefit to this run defense. It also slides Jordan Brooks into more of kind of a, I know it's another middle linebacker in this defense, but we're running four man fronts. It's a, it's the, will is pretty much what Jordan Brooks is running. Right. So it also moves Jordan Brooks kind of out of the middle linebacker to more of a will, which lets him kind of freelance a little bit. He doesn't have to do as much the hard hat stuff of the middle linebacker in there, take it on blocks and whatnot. Um, but Bobby, I think is leading the charge on this another place and not to toot my own horn on this, but this is where I was also very consistent on saying this. 
Jaron Reed can slide back into his origins. He was a one-tech and a zero-tech at Alabama. He helped that win that program win a national title playing within that very role. That is who he originally was. Now, he became something else along the way with our Seahawks, a three-tech and a pass rusher. But there was always that as far as his base skill that he could call back upon. It's just that he didn't. Why? Because nobody's paying one-techs. Nobody's paying run-stuffers. People are going to pay three-techs, as we did, two times over to him. And a one-year contract and a multiple-year contract. So he's now had, as he's gotten older in his career, not the pass rusher he once was, still can pass rush a little bit, but now he can gain a little weight this offseason, get back on the weights, add an extra five to 10 pounds that he would have lost to be that three-tech and re-hunker back down as that one zero-tech type guy and really flourish back within that role. Just him to me, Brendan, going back to his origins of you know who he was and what he does you know best. Finally, gap integrity. This is a it, this is a gap integrity defense, and what I mean by that is you have eleven players on this defense that all have a gap that they're responsible to going and making sure that they fill. And it's it's an easier said than done deal, especially for those defensive linemen that often get carried lateral because it's very you're trying to stay with the play while staying your gap while still staying to where the play is flowing to. It's a very kind of a thing of touch. And it's a thing that you probably could understand. It takes some defensive linemen a little bit of time to get the, you know, to get their feel for it, you know, right. But um, I think that that's also been done better this year too. The guys aren't, you know, playing unsound as undisciplined in the run, especially guys are on the details in their gap integrity across the board from the safeties to the linebackers to the front. And uh, that's why it's all working together. And it's and it's a boring answer to say it's a team-based solution here in a lot of respects outside of those guys I just mentioned, Brendan, but I think it is a team-based kind of solution they've also found at the forefront here. Yeah, I think we really got to give Jaron Reed some love here because not only is he doing all that stuff in run defense that you're talking about, according to PFR, he leads the team, the whole team in QB pressures to start the season. So he's doing it. He's he impressive. He's absolutely doing it. And when I signed him, when we signed him, I was a little lukewarm on it. I was like, okay, I guess, sure, the price is right. But I wasn't expecting him to be anything more than a jag. And so far through two games, I think he's been well more than a jag. Agreed. Well, and that's understandable because the run defense grades, as, as much as I'm giving him credit here, they weren't there before. But I, I, and maybe I'm doing the math off on this, but that's just my own personal view on it. It's just that I think what he did is he made that conscientious decision at some point early on in his career of going, hey, I can, I can do this password stuff. You know, I could do this password stuff and it's a, it's a two skill set thing. And so if I was to be a defensive tackle who came in as a one tech naturally, and then I came to found, I was a, a pretty good pass rusher. One of the natural things I might do is lose a little bit of weight, get a little more lively, a little more quicker of step to be even more effective as a pass rusher. And once I transition back to the other role, if I were to ever do that, gain back some of that weight. And that was the reports we had out of Reed coming into camp is that he had added a little bit of weight back on um, making this change. Okay, so that's uh, Jaron Reed. Um, Jordan Brooks. I want to talk about Jordan Brooks for a second here because uh, I feel like he looked pretty good again. I feel mm -hmm. like he looks better than he did last year, and he had tore his ACL eight and a half months ago. Mm -hmm. How does he do that and look better? Is it just me? Like uh, The coverage numbers came out earlier today. I looked at them. He was targeted in coverage seven times, gave up 34 yards. Like, that's not bad. I can live with that. I can live sure. with that all day from a linebacker. Yeah. Less than five yards per target. Mm -hmm. 
and you had the blitz, and that blitz was huge. That that QB pressure he put on Goff, that flipped the game dramatically because that was fourth down. And the run defense seems like it's still there. Like, is it just me, or does Jordan Brooks look better than he ever really has before? Um, I, I do think that he's looked improved. I'll say that. Um, has he looked better than he ever has before? I, I, maybe. Yeah. I, I, I guess maybe there's a bit of a, an argument to be made with that. I hadn't really considered it as much to be honest with you. And he posted really good grades coming out of this game overall with it. Um, I think he's improved and I think he's in a better spot than where he was otherwise, where being that main middle linebacker, green dot on his helmet, bring the calls in. He doesn't have to think as much, I think, in this role where he's at. Now he just gets to run around and be fast. Um, and he does look a little bit more improved in in the zone coverage uh, side of things. Um, he's a good run defender. He's always been a good run defender, though. He's always been right. a good tackler. So those are the parts of his game I've always tried to give him credit for when I have even knocked the coverage. It's, it's just a matter of just knock it down just a little bit. Get yourself out of, you know, instead of a thousand yards a season, get us down to like around 500 or a little bit below 500. And that'll be a substantial jump for us for what you're doing in coverage right now. Um, but uh, yeah, he's looked marginally better. I wouldn't go too overboard. Like I think he's taken huge leaps forward in his game now. And it's like, okay, now we're getting, seeing why he's a first round pick, but he's been an above average linebacker to begin things this year. And he has looked better and especially looked better in zone coverage. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm actually really surprised. I thought this was going to be a process for Jordan Brooks to get back to even like NFL caliber. Like I thought this was going to be a process, but somehow, some way it's, it's almost, obviously it's not, it's not to that level, but it's like the Adrian Peterson thing where he had his best season ever, like eight months after tearing his Achilles or ACL or whatever it was. Like it's, it almost feels like that. I I don't know how this is going on right now, but um, it's pretty nice. And I, I just, I know he'll never be a great player, but, Right now, through two games, I think we've seen a pretty good player. Well, yeah, you're right, and I think you're part of what you're dancing around with this is that the, this this linebacker can work. You know, if this defense can find those schematic adjustments that we've kind of called for, not major ones, just slight little turns here, knob here, this bar up down, this you know, like you're getting the levels right in a studio and you're trying to get the mix right. Um, he can be a functional linebacker in this defense with that, especially with Bobby. They're able to serve the main role as that main middle linebacker. And um, he's shown that, I think, through the first couple of weeks. I think the coverage issues will always be there to some small degree, but if we can minimize it, um, it's not going to be something that deep sixes this defense because he does bring enough to the table on the plus side of it that you know you can off you can offset that. But you are right. It's it is absolutely worth mentioning and lauding. Um, how well he's played to come off. I mean, to the work ethic involved to get himself back to where he is now and what that took, having that ACL injury so late in the year last year and to be playing at his best now, it is pretty phenomenal to consider that. And uh, it's it's awesome. It's helping. It's every This defense needs it, that's for sure. Um, last guy I want to shout out in a positive way would be Mario Edwards. He uh, didn't play a ton, but I thought he played pretty well, made a play in the backfield. I think you can see that he is exactly what we thought we were going to get when we signed him. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm feeling pretty good about that one right now. That was a nice uh, late off-season pickup, I think. I think if you loved, you mentioned was another reason why you've been good in run stuffing and better in them. He's another guy out of the mix that's definitely done his part. And that's what you brought him in to help you do. And uh, he can provide that. And uh, it was good to see. I agree. He was flashing a couple times in this game. And uh it definitely the run defense, you can see it coming together. You can see the plan because it's you've already been this good at run defense, or at least you were throughout this game. You got Witherspoon in there and how he's going to help. Jamal Adams is going to come back into this. Well, I don't know if the pass cover is going to get fixed, Brendan, but we're going to stop the run. Yeah. <laughs> you know, 
You got right. Julian Lovell slide into the slot, you know, and you know, take one more tackler into the slot versus a guy that's not as good as tackling the slot at that point. So if they want to go to the ultra, we ain't going to let you run 11 personnel that they're going to bring out. That would be the way to go. Yeah. So on the topic of the pass defense, I, I want to talk about some of the guys who were, I, I don't want to say that I'm calling these guys out individually, but they're the ones who are putting it on the tape that, they're part of the reason why things have not gotten off to a great start on defense. Um, Julian Love, according to PFR, has allowed two straight games of 100-plus yards in coverage, which I've mm -hmm. never seen before. Mm -hmm. I don't think and, – and to be clear, he didn't have any games anywhere near that bad last year when he was on the Giants. So that tells me we're doing something wrong with him. It's not like he forgot how to play football. You can't even say he got the bag. He did not get the bag. He's He got like 12 million bucks. He's playing for his next contract. Yeah. And he looks bad out there, man. He he, he really does just kind of look bad out there. There were some plays where he got his hand on the ball and it still got completed. He's the one who's constantly getting picked on in coverage. I think he's been targeted 19 times through two <laughs> games. Like um, when Jamal gets back, he's going to get to play less. And you just suggested maybe we move him into the slot, but I'm seeing him get beat up from the slot pretty good too. So I'm like, well, what's the solution here? How do we, I know this is a good player, but how, how do we make this work? Well, I think what Mike Jackson has shown us is that the coaching staff on this is not going to get married to guys in the secondary. And if there's a better guy in the secondary to be out there playing, he's going to find his way on that field one way or the other. I, I do think that a lot of the problems that come into Julian and when I watch the tape, where I go to in my mind as far as watching the majority of the completions he's given up, if he's given up 19, been 19 times he's been targeting, how many completions he's given up? Uh, I think like 12 or 13 or something like that. Let me so, check. I'd reckon to guess if let's just say it's 13, it was 13 of those 13 and 19 times targeted. I would reckon to guess that probably Brendan 10 to 11 of those have been in zone coverage. The thing that stands out to me and most here is that he's been moving from the giant scheme, which is more man based with all the blitz stuff that they do to now more an ultra zone team. And he just doesn't look as comfortable running zone as much. Um, as he does running man, I think. And so you've got to work to get him into man-based situations. This is why I logically then deduce, okay, Kobe Bryant's been kind of right there with Julian Love is not a very good guy down there for you in the slot and how he's played so far. So there is room for an improved spot there. You slide in Jamal now and you put Jamal in strong, then I think you bring down Julian, you get him in the slot. Slot tends to play man-based coverage concepts more than zone. So now you don't have him in zone as much. Uh, maybe back now with having Jamal back, you're running a little bit more of the blitz stuff. So that's kind of how I'm thinking of it with, you know, that it all goes together kind of like that, but that's a prediction. That's a guess. I, I don't know for sure how they're going to play it. I think some of this was going to be the thought process of this was maybe Julian would stay at strong safety and there would be more of Jamal in at linebacker, Brendan. But I think that being that Jordan Brooks has looked solid next to Bobby down there, that there'll be less of a pull to take Jordan off the field in, yeah. uh, in favor of pulling, uh, bringing Jamal down there. Yeah, and we'll get we'll get Bush back at some point, and I think Bush has played pretty well for us so far. Small sample size, but I I don't think we have a deficiency at that position right now. I'm pretty pretty okay with what we're doing at inside linebacker. I agree, but uh, yeah, I, I know Julian loves a good player. And by the way, I looked; he's given up 14 completions in two games. It's okay. bad. But, 85 to 9 percent of those have got to be in zone, though. I swear to God, off the tape, it's it's he's not running man very often. Yeah, I. Uh, is it just a thing where we're going to have to wait for all these guys to get out there? 
Like we're going to have to get Woolen and Witherspoon and Love and Adams. And at that point, we're just going to be forced to run a lot of man. Because if we get to that point and we're still running a, a ton of zone, I, I don't know what to say about it anymore. I guess it just can never happen. I guess we just can't be allowed to have that. So I, it, it's, it's too bad. It seems like every time we're close to getting all these guys on the field at once, something else happens. But um, yeah. sometime in the next few weeks here, we should actually see it. And I'm, really hoping we see something different when that day comes. I really am too, because I think that the ultimate potential of this defense lies in its willingness to adopt man principle concepts, to adopt pressure-based looks. Like you mentioned before, this is a thing where you're not saying blitz 90% of the time or run man 75% of the time, but just take yourself from a bottom of the league level to more of a middle of the road level. And that would be a substantial difference in the amount that you've run at verse prior. And I think could definitely open things up for you to find some more stops and some more successes in your coverage at that point, especially because it then leans to the strength of your personnel in the secondary. You're right. We got to maybe wait for it, but then you will have the strength of the secondary out there. And there'll be some times I think that they could, they could lock some teams down watching Witherspoon this week, knowing what Tariq brings on his side of it, knowing now what happens, you bring that pressure in there and they can't just sit back there and let the, the natural flow of the beat of the game go where they get in rhythm. There is no rhythm to be found. I just go, man, that's, that's the defense final form right there. Like hopefully the coaching staff can embrace it. We'll monitor and track it, but that's, to me, what gets me excited, God willing, these guys can eventually stay healthy enough to actually go out and run it. But you got the cats to do it, and you've never had that prior. You've always yep. had zone-based guys here. Always, It's an important part. You've always had that here. You could never go to this adjustment, no matter how many fans wanted to call for it before. It was never even going to be in the vicinity of a reality because you didn't have the guys that could run, man. Now you do. Yeah. Okay, so that's the Julian Love part of this. Uh, also, um, Kobe Bryant just doesn't look right out there to me. Uh, I don't know. Seems like, again, feels like he's just playing out of position. Feels like this is not suited to his skill set. I'm not blaming the player. I'm not. Believe me, I'm not. But uh, something's not right there. And Quandre Diggs, um, another game. I just wasn't impressed. Uh, PFR gave him no completions allowed in both games. But, I, I like, that first touchdown... He's late on that play, isn't he? Do, do, do you disagree with that? Like the first touchdown we allowed, he's supposed to come over and take that away. And it feels like he's late getting over there. How do you feel about it? I got to double check the snaps exactly because I, I think my initial feeling was the guy in the coverage who's supposed to be carrying the receiver up the seam there didn't love. carry. Love didn't carry the receiver at all. Like Love soft played the, and that's what I've seen from Love too often is that he's just very tentative in his reaction skills and coverage, you know, and he's he's constantly pointing to somebody. That, that was a big thing with him in the, remember I was hammering him in the first game was he's, he was Mr. Point. I'm, I'm pointing at everybody to go, over. You, you get him. I'm not getting him. You're You're getting him. It's like, pick something up. You know, um, so there's it, it more felt like me it was probably that, like you'd like to ideally have your safety help there over the top, kind of like the flea flicker play. Um, it'd be great to have digs over the top, but the final responsibility on that play goes down to Witherspoon, not Diggs. you know, where Diggs has got run run responsibilities and run fits on that play. And you, you've got to stay over the top. That's your first responsibility, probably on the defensive play call, the Witherspoon there. So I would think the same thing on that. I will say that. Diggs did definitely 100% give up a completion in the first game on the over route against the Rams. I mean, yeah. I, you, you watch the all 22 and he goes like this. He's like, you know, he, all of the body language, as soon as the completion, not only does it look like it, but then if you watch the body language, which will often tell you the player, if you don't know what's going on responsibility wise with him, they'll kind of tell you like, you know, 
if they'll point at another guy, start barking at him, or if they'll go like, oh, I messed up there. You know, you can kind of get that feel. Like Diggs gave that kind of feel after that one. So he gave that one up. But with that said, um, I don't I don't have a big a lot of problems with Diggs right now. I think you've dropped into soft zone coverages and you've dropped your safety to depth. There were times I watched the All-22 last week, Brendan, where um, you know, I joked that there was times he was lined up in Antarctica, you know, where it's, he's so deep off the ball. He's so far off the ball that there's just no way to come up there and have any kind of positive effect on short in cutting routes, short crossers, short drag routes. So, you know, that's, that's where, to my mind, I come back to more of adjust the defense, you know, get a little bit more stylistically into a bit more of an aggressive state and quick, just being about protecting the deep ball at every turn. But I, I think he's left in sometimes, much like Earl was at times, in a bit of a you know tough situation of your responsibility is to be the the ultimate protector. You know, if stuff goes wrong, you're there to be the cleanup guy, and that doesn't allow you to then be the impact guy. And and that's it sucks. I don't like it about it because I think that Diggs has a lot of room to be the impact guy. There was some of the interceptions he made last year, and some of what he just said was him reading things and him knowing his tape study and going to that, going back to that to be able to know when he could go make a play. And that's lost if you just have the guy back single high to depth every single snap, not able to come up and do that type of stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Again, I'm I'm really trying to lay off the whole old blaming the players thing. I'm talking. I'm trying to look at the things that you're talking about, the uh, scheme, the uh, positions that the coaches put the players in. So that's probably very much the case as well. But to my eye, Diggs just hasn't looked very good to start the season. But um, I, I maybe I was expecting a little too much. I thought he was going to have a big bounce back year after last year was kind of up and down. Maybe I was expecting a little too much. I think he can still come back. I mean, especially if they start to adjust some of the man stuff, if they're just, you got it for whatever reason, we dropped really heavily into this. We're going to protect against the deep stuff against these two quarterbacks. And that's just, it's the, the, the free safety position is the position above any other in this defense where it can, re, you can be removed schematically from the play and having an impact because we are the bend, but don't break. We are the, we're not going to allow a deep play, a big play. And you have to have your safety playing like a cover two safety in single high situations. That's the key. So I have a safety, uh, you know, I have a normal defenses that might use these two safeties to cover up against this deep in our, in our scheme. We want that one safety to be able to cover both sides of the field equally. Well, to attain that now, if I have a Fangio defense, Brendan, where the safeties are normally going to line up 12 yards off the line of scrimmage, now instead I'm going to have him 20, 25, 30 yards off the line of scrimmage because that's a lot of territory and area he's got to cover and he needs that extra yardage to be able to do that. That's how we get into some of these really super uber soft coverage concepts is we have to kind of start from there where we put our free safety out and then we got our corners dropping back close to where that safety is and now you got all these holes up in front of those guys. But that is, that's where it is. Does it to me, especially in this one, I won't always do it at all positions, but this one, this gets hard for me on the free safety. Cause it's like, well, what do you, the guy should come up should rally from 50 yards back and come up and, and be still protecting against the deep stuff. It It's just tough. That's just sort of the nature of the defense where it makes it tough for those guys to do, to do a whole hell of a lot of times. Right. And uh, I think that's about all there is to say about the defense. I, I thought that Derek Hall played better, looked a little more stable in there, mm -hmm. um, played all right. He, he got his first ever uh, QB hit. Here so, you know, we have to put a little more on him because Mafe's out and the a lot of the additional load falls on him. And I thought he held up fine. Not amazing, but for a rookie that we all know is going to be, it's going to be a bit of a process with him. I'd say pretty good. I was encouraging step from him. I thought Daryl Taylor had his best game in run defense out there uh, actually uh, yeah although he did get washed out on the touchdown run by uh what was that uh Mont montgomery 
mm-hmm. that was kind of on his head. And he he also, uh, I, I don't know, what did you think of that uh, roughing the passer call where he hits golf eight seconds after he hands it off? And I, people in my chat were arguing, did he think that golf had the ball or did he like, oh, here's my chance to hit golf and maybe get away with it because it was a play, it was a handoff. Like, what'd you think of that? Well, first off, I can 100% prove that it was not him with a dirty hit deciding that this is a good opportunity to take a shot at uh, Jared Goff. Because if you watch the All-22, as soon as he slides over the top of Goff, he believes he's just gotten a sack and begins to do his sack celebration. So I the, missed that. I missed that. Yeah, so the the thinking that he was um, that he was just doing the free hit, no, that's not. Uh, I'm actually going to rely on this one in a spot where I say um, – I don't think that that should be a penalty. Really? And my reasoning on it is this. The quarterback is carrying out a fake. What is the fake that he's carrying out? That he still has the football in his hands. A player then hits him. And then we're mad at the player because the quarterback made him think he had the ball in his hands when he didn't. Well, you know, we're in this we're in this era, Brandon, where quarterbacks are protected at every little area over here and over there, and don't hit them too hard, don't hit them in the head, don't hit them too quickly after the pass. It would seem to me that the quarterbacks could do some very easy self-protection here by handing the ball off and then dropping your hands at your sides. So I think the quarterbacks have some control over taking this hit or not taking this hit. And I think that if you're going to carry out the fake, don't get surprised then when you get blasted. Remember, this was one of the things that put the read option to, to bed, Brendan, if you remember this. And that was that what defenders, that what, what coordinators started to do is they go, oh yeah, you know what we can do here? We can just smack the quarterback right in the face. Like it may be a, it may be a give or not a give. It may be a, a running play, that, but we can just now take an, one of those few opportunities we get in the game to hammer the quarterback right there in the chest, right after the throw. I mean, really drill him. And teams did it against Russ a couple of times. And that started to make, I think, some offensive coordinators and coaches around the league go, okay, let's run a little bit less of those, you know? And so, you know, what's good for, if you want to hold that fake out to me, you should be open to getting blasted. I'm sorry. I don't, don't do the fake then, you know? It's very easy then, you know? Then you'll have my ultimate sympathy if you get hit. Yeah. But remember, um, Taylor's the, remember, Taylor's the blindside rusher there. Mm-hmm. He can't see, it's, it's Goff's back, blindside. It's there in the name, blindside, right? You're blind to where you can't see the guy's ball. You can't see the ball in the hand. So like, you know, is he supposed to be like Superman and look through the body and like, oh, there's a ball there, you know, or nope, there is no ball there. I mean, that's, you know, I have the ultimate sympathy for the defender on this one. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that is a pretty good point. I will say this. I feel like the NFL has basically said that look we're going to protect quarterbacks it's not fair to the defender we know but deal with it like we know it's not fair we know that you're we're being unreasonable with what we're asking defenders to do but deal with it like too bad if you don't like it retire like like the remember the uh chris jones penalty where he sacked uh Derek carr last year and fell on him and they called it roughing even that it was like a game-changing penalty it was a primetime game and there was nothing chris jones could do he falls on Carr because what else is he gonna do and it it gets called roughing the passer and i just look at that and i go that's the nfl basically saying yeah it's not fair but too bad tough don't play defense if you don't like it 
Yeah, I, I don't get too up in arms on it. Like, it's not one of those moments in like live stream where I'm freaking out and like, that shouldn't, you know, I know it's going to be called a penalty. It's, it is the way that things go. But if you, if we go to like, you know, well, it's what the law says, like, okay, well, it's what the law says, but it's not what really is right or not right, you know, which is that there's, there's no intent to harm here. It's a guy and the quarterback is bringing the pain to himself here, in my opinion. That's the part of this of culpability here that we have to, and this one that's different of other plays, it's like, He's he's bringing a hit here what he could control and doesn't have to bring here. And he's bringing the hit there to try and remove one defender from in play to go make a tackle. You know, that's also what he's doing in that moment. That's what his motivations are. And I and they, they don't. But to me, that should play a bit of a part in that in a way that it doesn't. Uh, OK, so I think that wraps up the defense. They Trey Brown. Play. Trey Brown played great too. Let's. Oh yeah, him, yeah, yeah. Well, him. yeah. Trey Brown's kind of the headliner here, I guess. Right. We got to give yeah. him a little bit, bit of love here. Yeah, yeah. Give it up to uh, Trey Brown making some plays out there. He had what the sack, forced a fumble, had the interception. I think he had another PD pass defense down the field. Yep. Uh, in the fourth quarter, he did give up a few. I think he gave up like fifty yards in coverage. He gave up the touchdown. But um, I think we're starting to get a pretty clear idea of who the three best cornerbacks on this team are. Agreed. And he's one of them. Yeah, it would appear that he is one of them. And it's good to see because he had the the upside that Jackson didn't have. You kind of knew where Jackson's upside was going to be. And that we thought he would be a functional guy if you brought him out there. But with, with with Trey, it was always, well, if he can get back to that, you know, you know rookie year kind of feel to him, um, that's a guy that could be a real player. And let's, let's not forget, he had a preseason interception where he jumped the route and he's got the pick six here. So, you know, maybe a little bit of momentum moving and working in the right way here with Trey. Um, yeah. And, um, let's see here. There was actually one, uh, super chat talking about this. A uh, feed me more Legos. Thank you for the $2. How would you feel if they put spoon in slot? Um, well, our three best corners seem to be spoon woolen and Brown. We know woolen's not going in the slot. Maybe Trey Brown could, but I have more confidence in Witherspoon doing it than Brown doing it. So that may end up being what we do here. And I'm not against it. Uh, yeah, I'm not against it because at the end of the day, and I want to be consistent with this. And my approach coming in this season with this defense was, you know, get the best 11 bodies out on the field. And the coaching staff has given us indications that that's their belief as well. And so that's what you seek to do. And whatever, you know, that, whatever that, that, that approach it takes. I, before I got to spoon in the slot, I would first like to try out Julian Love in the slot with Adams and strong safety. I would, that would be my preference. A little bit more of Adams than in the box is that strong safety, you know, a little more of that going and leaning into that. But, but if you were still defined that that position was a struggle and now you've got Brown sitting on the bench once Woolen gets back, then yeah, I will be drawn then at that point to, as the secondary option to go then to put Spoon in the slot. But I, I liked what I saw out of him on the outside today in this past game. Um, his tackling is going to be very important going forward from the outside. It'll be important from the slot too, but I really like on the outside because a team like we saw from the Detroit, Brendan, a lot of these offensive passing attacks, what they'll do is they'll bring the receiver in motion pre-snap. The receiver comes down and either takes out the defensive end like the Rams like to do a lot of times, or they'll go down to the safety. And then they create a situation where the back's one-on-one -on -one with a corner tackling in space, and the corner's got to be able to hold up out there and tackle. The one thing you do get once you put Trey Brown out there, and even to a smaller degree with Tariq Woolen, is now you don't necessarily have a plus tackler on your outside corner there if you do kick that guy inside. Yeah, it is important to tackle from the slot, though. 
It is, but the isolation on the outside of these corners in the tackling game by these modern offenses in the run game is a lot more is being opened up and exposed to more vulnerability than the guy is on the outside in the slot because you have linebackers next to you in the slot. When you're out there on that edge, if you can't tackle, if your guys are struggle to tackle, and keep in mind, Trey Brown's had some real bad moments here recently in tackling, yeah. including even this last game, I believe, a couple moments. So, oh, yeah. And and Tariq Wollin's a receiver converted to cornerback. So, you know, he's he's a work in progress and he's got a sore shoulder now that who knows how long that's going to be, you know, sore going into the future. So I, that'd be my one little worry with moving him in there on that is that you don't necessarily get the he, even though he'll be fine as a tackler in there that maybe not as good. You don't get as much as you'd get him on the outside. Okay, so let's see. Eli Solo, thank you for the dollar ninety nine most impressive rookie to you guys. Um, mm. so far this regular season, so far in the regular season, I would probably say, oh, that's actually a tough one. Cause I think a lot of them have been all right. Like I thought Witherspoon legitimately played really well in this game, mm-hmm. but it's just the one game. I think Derek Hall took big strides from that first game. So did Charbonnet, but they were starting from a pretty low point. Uh, Old Watini played six snaps, but I thought they were six pretty good snaps, but it's only six snaps. I don't think I can say that. Um, Man, this one's tough to pick one guy. What do you think? I really don't think there is a one guy that's been most impressive. Um, Witherspoon, if I had to make a pick, even though it's only one game, would be the most impressive. But they've all they, they've all had some little bright moments, um, but nobody's necessarily come out and, and really shined or, or you know. Uh, JSN's been targeted and made his catches on the moments he's been targeted, um, but he's not necessarily had any real big effect on it. And, you know, they've, everyone's had a little bit of these, you can go to these little moments, even a Jarek Reed. I mean, making a couple of tackles in, in special teams in this past game against the Lions, including yeah. that one where he looked like, uh, almost like Ricardo Lockett a bit. We didn't even right. some of that. Um, so, you know, there's every, it's a good thing. It ain't a bad thing. I'd say to Eli and that there's actually a kind of multitude of guys where you feel good about all of the, the little contributions they've gave. But there, from that, there hasn't been that one guy that's been the oh, but this guy, what he's he's been the he's been that difference maker like guy quite yet. Maybe it will be in a couple of weeks. But everybody right now has just been kind of steady, Eddie. Things going along smooth and easy, so to speak. Yeah, if I had to pick one, I think I would go with Witherspoon as well because that it, it was a tough ask, mm-hmm. and you can see the Lions are aware. Like, okay, this is this guy's first ever NFL game. Let's target this guy on a flea flicker. Yeah. It's it's a back shoulder throws, flea flickers. They were the video I'll show tomorrow, Brendan. They were doing a lot of concepts where, you know, he's in zone, which we know he's that's the place he wanted to have some help in. And they would stop the receiver off of the route that's across from him on the outside. And then they would loop the slot back into his zone going to depth. So he had to read on the fly, sort of like a switch release where it's, okay, switch off that guy. My slot's going to take the outside corner. I've got to take this outside guy and roll with them to depth. And he picked it up a couple of times that he got challenged in that way with ease. And uh, that just really stood out to me, the tackling, the getting off blocks. You know, he's throwing these receivers off of him with purpose in a way you just don't see cornerbacks do. And I, right. I think that even though we didn't get the flashiness and he did get beat on a couple of those plays, it was still a very, very impressive early performance from Witherspoon. Uh, let's see here. The Snail, thank you for the $2. Think we'll see Q Blue Kelly this weekend. I think we promoted Artie Burns, so I think he's the guy who gets more action rather than Kelly. Blue's going to be a project. That's yeah. what he is. He's the he's the the Harley that's in your garage, and you're trying to get a new motor put on it. 
the chains slipped on the side, you know, there's a couple things you got to get, you know, fixed before you can get him out on the open road. Yeah. He's like a uh, Therald Simon and hopefully he has a better end than Therald exactly. Simon did. Exactly. It's nice to have projects that they're this talented, but that's the reason that he was released originally there with the Ravens. I think it was because, you know, they knew this guy's got a long way to go. Let's see here. John, thank you for the membership. Thank you for becoming a YouTube member. And I believe John also gifted five memberships. So congratulations to Piccolo, DD Cat Lover, Ayush, Cheeto 9X, and VBX Silisk. Congratulations on your gifted memberships. Hell yeah, John, you rock. Uh, Mumbles, thank you for the $5. On the broadcast, there is a camera angle directly behind Taylor where you can't see Goff's hands or the ball where it looks like he's looking downfield. Yeah, yeah, there is. That's my whole point is it's it's Taylor's the blindside rusher and he's coming from the side. And yeah, it's it's all you're seeing is Goff's back as you're coming from Taylor's side of it. And look, I'm not saying that Taylor's the brightest bulb in the in the in the bag. Okay. Like this guy ran onto the field last year mid-play <laughs> to go congratulate an interception okay. while they were still it was still going on. Well, so well, he actually ran on the field to block. Right. You ran on the field. Yeah. Yeah. You ran on the field. No, no, he ran it. No, 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 no. He ran on the field to congratulate, but then he, then he just went with it and then started blocking. Well, so, let me, let me can I counter that. That might actually be the smartest play ever because he got away with it. Maybe he's actually really smart. Well, it's, it's like those movies so bad. It's good. Right. Mm -hmm. So stupid that you eventually work your way back to being smart. Right. Right. One of those things. <laughs> so, but yeah, I, that's what my thinking on the two mumbles. I mean, if it was, it was where I knew that he could see what was going on, but the quarterback's holding his hands up here in the same position he'd hold the ball. And if you're trying to get off the pass rush initially and you don't have a chance to see the handoff and you just see a quarterback standing there like he's looking down there, I mean, it's it can that's where I go. That how do you how do you penalize the defender for that? The quarterback's kind of I'm, I'm not saying he's asking for it. I know that's not a popular term to use, but he's kind of asking for it, isn't he? When he does that, I mean. Yeah, I, again, I think that's just uh, the NFL acknowledging that, look, we know it's not fair, but we don't care. We'd rather yeah. have it not be fair than have Tom Brady lose a whole season because somebody went low by completely not his fault on his knees. We'd rather have that than, I mean, not that it stops it from happening, don't get me wrong. We saw that this year with Aaron Rodgers already, of course, but yeah. They're going to make it as unfair as possible so they can keep their quarterbacks on the field because quarterbacks sell tickets, get people to turn their TVs on, et cetera, et cetera. I get it. And I, I'm going to get mad about it. It's, it, it. You're right. The rule, it's the lay of the land. So, you know, they got to wrap them in bubble wrap and so uh -huh. be it, you know, but yeah. I'll, I'll never, I'll never shake a finger at a defender who decides to take, you know, to take a moment to make a, you know, decision there on that. I'm not going to do that. I'll be like, oh, I get it. Put your hands down, quarterback. <laughs> uh, Megan, thank you for the $20 Australian. Uh, hey, boys, you may have discussed this, so my apologies if you have, but who do you think covers our injuries? I'm very concerned about our seeming lack of depth to cover them, or am I overthinking things as always? Well, big picture-wise, I feel like injuries are just kind of way up so far this year. I made a video about this earlier today mm -hmm. and i feel like every game there's four or five injuries at least and you just hope that they're all minor and maybe they'll be back later that day or the next week and like i i made a video i put the video up actually yesterday right before the thursday night game and i basically said 
we're playing Carolina next week. And the question for us is not so much, is someone going to get hurt? The question is, who's it going to be? And sure enough, Shaq, uh, Shaq Thompson gets hurt. Um, and then in the late game, you had Chubb, you had Fitzpatrick, you had. You mentioned JC Horn too, for the Panthers. Yeah, that's, that's their number one corner. Yeah. You had Ward, Denzel Ward and Greg Newsome. So like, there are just a lot of injuries right now. And I don't know if we can necessarily say the Seahawks are doing anything wrong. Yeah, I, I would uh, say probably the same thing here, Megan, that it is a little more of a league-wide trend. I think it's a league-wide trend that's also explainable back to the lack of preparation. And this has really become more reinforced over the last seven, eight years, more than ever before in the NFL. And so the, that's why we get new things like this coming where that hadn't been there 15, 20 years ago. Um, both of the last two CBAs, the players have negotiated to have less, less practice time. And also on top of less practice time, less off-season minicamp time, less padded practices all the way down the line, both in off season and at training camp and in during season. And so what this means is that the coaches are at a place of not being able to properly, not only just teach these guys the proper technique to, to be athletically sound in their, in what they're doing and going out tackling or how they're trying to break down, but also just in preparing your bodies. I think that there was something to the old ways, as hard as those ways may have been on the bodies of those players long-term in prepping those bodies for a given season to be able to sustain the punishment. And if you don't put that preparation in, you're going to have a harder time sustaining the punishment. And, uh, you know, you might train like hell, you might lift all those weights and all that, but you know, you haven't taken the bumps you essentially need to kind of take to get your body to, to where it can handle that stuff. And so, uh, it's a it's a problem, and this has also been compounded, Brendan, by the fact that that they don't teams don't play in the preseason. So now, not only do you have these practices that have been removed in the offseason, but now you have teams that don't even play in the preseason, and guys then get beat up and hurt. It's like, well, yeah, you can't just go from zero to hundred, I think, and that's what we have a lot of going on, I think, across the league is all these teams are so risk averse during training camp, Brendan, with the preseason games of camp playing because we don't want that major injury because that just has egg on our face and makes us look so horrible if we get a major player that hurt in the preseason. But the other side of this is that your your team may just look, you know, completely miserable for weeks on end until they can find their their footing, if it's to be found. Yeah, and the the uh, way the CBA has been worked out, there's not really anything you can do about it. Yeah, um, I don't know what the solution is. It's not even like, oh, you need to play your starters in preseason. That that's not it. I mean, Denver did that, and they've got all these injuries already. Like that 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 wasn't some get out of jail free card. So I don't know. The problems. The problem feels like it can't be fixed because I don't think the players are going to give back what they've worked so hard to get in these last couple CBAs. No, that's why you, what you do is you, you look for depth, Megan, you, you look for the, to, to create the points in your team where you're not just, Oh, here's the 51st, 52nd, 53rd guy in the roster. And these are just guys there that are for special teams. Now you have to have guys on that can play the special teams, but also need to be able to play their positions too. And in the past, I think you could have afforded have had three or four guys that are, he's listed as a linebacker, but he'll never play linebacker. You know, now you can maybe afford to have one of those guys on your roster. You didn't give him one time. The rest of the guys got to go out there and fill their position. A guy like Jarek Reed, that's got to play in special teams has also got to be your backup free safety and come up, come in there and handle, handle the duties if he's called upon. Um, so this is also a little bit when we talk about organizations and what they can do to use, like you say, Brendan, it's not changing. The wind's going to blow this direction into the immediate future. So all you can do, I think, is just try to build up your depth and make that a little bit more of a priority than you would have in the past. Kronos1009, thank you for the membership. Welcome aboard, Kronos. Let's go, Kronos. 
Uh, Addison Shelby, thank you for the $5. Does the way the Rams played on Sunday put the loss from last week into perspective a little bit? What are your thoughts about the Artie Burns promo? All right, so we already talked a little bit about the Artie Burns promo. We both think it makes sense. He's a good player. He's played pretty well so far this year. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, the Artie Burns is that he's he's a, a veteran, former first-round pick. He's got some talent. He can play any of the positions, a cornerback, left, right, slot. He's a good tackler. Um, you've got some question marks a little bit with Brown and Jackson on the consistency front, so he's a good insurance policy to have. Uh, as for this first one, this one's kind of tough. Uh, I just, I can't see it. I can't see the Rams being good. That defensive depth chart is so bad. There's no way that this maintains, but they did play good. I thought if Van Jefferson doesn't lose his mind on that one pass that gets picked off, mm -hmm. I think the Rams probably win that game actually. I mean, it's it's very possible, and I, it's very – don't get me wrong on this, Addison. It's very impressive what Sean McVay has has done with the um, this team early on being where they are. I do think, like Brennan says, this team, when we look at week eight, we're going to be looking at a team that's two and six. You know, We're still going to be looking at a team, to me, that's still one of the bottom of the barrel organizations. Are they in contention for the number one overall pick? No, maybe not that, but four to five wins is as much as I think you're going to get out of this Rams team. Does that – then put that loss in a perspective, uh, a better perspective from where it was. Not really to me. That and and the reason, and I've got a couple of reasons for this. The way you lost, how bad you looked to look that bad at home. And and as I said at the top, I know you weren't in here, Addison, to begin things, but you know, Carol acknowledged this, and he went on seven ten, and he went, yeah, that loss was a little bit different. I can say this now, you know, and that's not usually the way Carol talks about losses. There's a little bit more of a moving on. It was a loss, whatever, no big deal. He has a tendency to kind of go the other way with it rather than describe it in that fashion. And I think what he was doing there was there was a little bit of an acknowledgement for those folks like myself or Brendan that came out of that game going, wait a second here. Yeah. Hold on a minute here. This isn't just a mere loss here. This was a this was a confounding, weird, bad loss. What's going on? You know, you don't have the team playing hard for you now. You haven't worked on any of the coverage stuff that we thought you're going to be working on to fix. It's all kind of the same sort of thing. Um, and it's to the Rams that aren't a very talented team that are down Cooper Cup. Let's also remember that they were down. You know, you may, I know Puka's looked good to start things off, but it's it, it is what it is with it. And um, I, you know, I it's good that they did what they did with the Niners. Niners to me though, that was under they were they were. I don't say they overlooked them, but look, the Niners are coming off that Steelers win, going back across the West. You know, they're probably feeling good. They didn't probably come in that game going, you know, let's run this hard as hell. Like they're probably taking their foot a little off the gas coming that game a little bit. I mean, the Rams haven't, you know, people, the teams know what they're going up against at this roster in the Rams. That's I think what we saw from Seattle in the first week is that there's a little bit of playing down to it a bit, but that doesn't make me feel any better as far as they're different about the perspective of it either. Yeah. we're I'm not there yet. Maybe, we get into October and November and they're still a good team and they actually, they, they've got some winning record. It's like, okay, that makes it better. I don't know if it's ever okay to play that bad in the season opener at home. Mm. I, I, I don't care who we're playing. I would have been disappointed in that game. Even if I thought we were a bad team this year, if I thought we were gunning for Caleb Williams, I still would, would have been like, you got to show up for your home opener. Yeah. I, I just that was as far as much anything that really just chapped me that you didn't have that team prepared to play and and looking like they were you know as they said themselves in the press as a couple of them said in the press conference after the game you know that other team wanted it more I, I just that they 
Do you have a team come into your building on opening week and they want it more? I get it if it's mid-year. I get it if it's week 11 and you're in the doldrums of the season and you're beat up and you just you've your mind's tired and your body's tired and that stuff is going to happen. That's human nature. But the first game of the year, you know, the first game of the season and McVay to beat you in the same way he's been beating you for years with the coverage stuff, it's just like, come on, like fix something, do something, you know. But we'll see. I may I'll feel differently, Addison, if we do get eight weeks in the season, they're six and two, then I'll eat the crow and bow. Well, I, I was completely um, off my rocker on that one, you know, yeah, but this isn't the deal that we agreed to. We were supposed to have two tanking teams in this division. This is not the deal that we agreed to. I'm not happy about it. Yeah, I exactly. I, I feel gypped. Rams, you need to become what you are. Stop this. Stop yeah. this madness. <laughs> uh, feed me more Legos. Thank you for the $5. What trio gave you more hype? Doug Metcalf, Tyler before, Doug retired or DKJSN and Tyler? Doug Metcalf and Tyler. Doug was never here with Metcalf. Yeah, that's the thing. Doug retired, right? I think Doug retired a few days before we drafted Metcalf. Yeah. So that's, uh, I, this, this receiving core has me more hyped than any receiving core we've had with its potential, in my opinion. Um, I agree. Yeah. I, I, I'm, this one's got even I this one's even got I think surpassed. I mean the 2012 one was solid coming in because that thing on paper on, on paper was insane kind of. Sydney Rice, uh you had uh Golden Tate former second round pick getting coming into his own Doug Baldwin on that roster um and then you had Percy Harvin, you know, coming into the mix as well, but you know, we really didn't have ever Percy it felt like on the team uh for any real given time so you never really got to feel the fruition of that outside of a game or two. Um, but this one's got me way more high for their potential because I just think that they reach this place where it's kind of unguardable, where yeah. you just get to a spot where you know somebody's going to be open on the football field, and it's just on Gino to target and find the right one. And more on those guys in a second because we are we still have to talk about this offense. That's going to be the fun part of the show tonight because uh, yeah, the offense I, you got to look long and hard to find one player on the offense that didn't play well on Sunday. Yeah. I think yeah, that's amen to that. Uh, Thaddeus Sexton, thank you for the dollar ninety nine. You guys think we'll sign a defensive tackle slash nose tackle? If so, then who? Yeah, this is the thing I'm trying to figure out here. I'm not entirely convinced, Thaddeus, that the team is intent on making a move at this point, unless one really presents itself that's advantageous and doesn't cost the sun, moon, and stars to pull it off. We have a guy by the name of Brian Monet is going to come back to this team at some point. And I think that the team's probably counting on him to be sort of a mid-season-ish acquisition post-bi-week guy that you add into the mix. And that the hope is between him, Cameron Young, and Jaron Reed, you have enough to make the nose tackle position work at that point. But um, I, I, I can't say for sure that they're going to look to nose going forward because – Look, I mean, we haven't even really committed as much to the 3-4. Um, it's more about a one-tech now than it is a nose tackle, which means it's just a different kind of cat you're looking for kind of body-wise a little bit. They're, yeah. they're similar, but they're, there's also some differences. Um, so I, I'm not sure, man. I, I think the team could very much just end up rolling with what they've got with Monet still due to return. Remember, they're very – whether me and Brennan hiring him, which is we're not, but uh, the team seems to be pretty high in Brian Monet. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out how we got here. It, it, we're running these two, we have two down linemen pretty much every play now. Yeah. And then we have the two edge rushers who are basically down linemen, except they're standing up. It's very confusing. I don't think I've seen this before. It feels like something we're doing because we have to, because we don't have enough defensive linemen. 
but we chose to not have enough defensive linemen. Like there were opportunities, like you could go bring in Matt Ioannidis or Chris Wormley or somebody like that right now. That is somebody who is capable of playing NFL level football and we're not doing it. So it's like, is this the plan or what? I think it was purposeful from the start in their approach this year and the form, the four man fronts, two man fronts, wherever we want to call it. I, that's what they've wanted to do. I think that they look at it as we're creating a new thing. You know, it ain't this and it ain't that it's its own new thing. And whether they're proven to be geniuses with this or whether they're just proven to be where you didn't want to give up the four three is really what this all boils down to. I don't know yet. We'll find that'll be what determines what this is a couple of years from now, Brennan, how we look at it, but it's going to go one of those two directions where it's either, you know, brilliant or we come back to it and say, no, you really just didn't want to adopt the three, four. And why didn't you want to adopt the three, four? Because if I put, you know, five men consistently at the line of scrimmage, I'm taking one less guy out of coverage now, and I'm going to commit to more man-based coverage concepts and less of the zone-based coverage concepts. And both of those latter two things are two things that Coach Carroll has tended to lean away from. That's not He doesn't tend to like to have his defense lean into those kind of things. So that may be another explanation for why we haven't seen it more as well. But I think it is on purpose. Yeah. Do, do you think the reason why we have our edge players stand up is because they're meant for a 3-4 and they're used to standing up? Like Nwosu spent his whole career in a 3-4. Mafe was more of a 3-4 prospect. Derek Hall kind of was too. Is that? Do you think that's what's going on here? No, I think that they thought that there's a lack of dynamicism in the players that they were finding for 4-3 defensive ends. And that they thought there was an easier pathway to finding a guy that I put out in a wide nine technique as an outside linebacker in this day and age than to find the guy that's going to put his hand in the dirt and and be able to operate like our guys have in the past in that spot. And if you look across the league, it's, it is kind of the truth. I mean, it's there, there's not a lot of real good edges that operate as a down down defensive end who are really good pass rushers from that. A lot of them are stand-up guys uh, across the sport. So I think you just leaned into what was going to be easier to find. You had had the Rasheem Green experiment not work. You had had the LJ Collier experiment not work. Two guys that were more in alignment to that traditional 4-3 defensive end kind of body who just couldn't get it done. And, and I think that that informed them a little bit to make this change and transition. Uh, right guy. Thank you for the four ninety nine. One thing I will say is that football is a game where injuries are part of the game. Injuries happen all the time in sports in general. Absolutely. But it feels like in football, it's up higher than usual right now. Yeah. I mean, and the good news is we'll see where I, there's some stats that always come out of this right guy at the end of the day of, you know, games missed to injury games, lost to injury. You know, that's always released every season and comes out. So we'll see where it lies today. If this year, if it is, you know, dialed up more, I think that if you look over like the last 10 years in games lost to injury and you go from, let's say, 2011 to 2001, and then you go from 2001 to 2011, I think you would find that there were less games lost to injury in that first 10-year period than the latter 10-year period. And I, th I would say a lot of that comes from the last two CBA agreements that have been come together between the ownership and the uh, Players Association, which at the head of both of those deals – the players were sort of like less practice time and then more money was the number two thing. But it was almost like less practice time became the number one priority on their list going into the negotiations. The thing that they wanted to pull out of those negotiations is the main thing. And less practice time, less prep time is always going to be more mean more injuries. That's just the nature of that beast, in my opinion. But you're right. It is always it is a part of the sport. Yeah, I mean, you can usually find a reason why those things happen, like in the NBA. NBA is a good example because... 
in the last several years, there have been more injuries and more mm -hmm. severe injuries. And the prevailing theory is that it's because teams are shooting more threes. So defenders are having to sprint around the court all the time, chasing down three-point shooters instead of just standing in the post all the time. And because they're running around constantly trying to keep up with these shooters running off screens, they actually have more leg injuries because they're constantly changing direction, working through traffic. It seems counterintuitive, but going from a post-based and uh, um, style of offense in the NBA to the three-point shooting actually created more injuries. Mm -hmm. I can see that. Yeah, it's more it's more wear and tear if I'm running – you know, if I run three miles or I'm running five and a half miles in a game, you know, that extra two and a half miles is more wear and tear, more opportunity for me to injure myself on that versus being stagnant, and not moving as much. Because that was the game as well is that not only the guys in the post, but the rest of the basketball players throughout basketball 20, 25 years ago more stood out in their areas. There was, you know, less movement. It was more, you know, one on one or running pick and rolls, you know. Yeah. Or just standing there on defense. Like you look at the 80s, yeah. they didn't play defense. They just stood there and like, okay, go get your basket. I'll go get my basket next time we go down. Exactly. They definitely had a lot of more games that could go that direction. That's for sure. Uh, pretentious Cameron, thank you for the $5. Since 2019, the Seahawks have been better on the road than they have at home. What do you guys think the reason for that is? I've been trying to figure this one out a while and I got nothing. I actually have a fairly well-built uh, theory on a couple of these. Um, as with all things, there's never just one answer that's the the one silver bullet reason for why it's occurring. At, at the head of it is I do believe that in raising the ticket prices, you've raised it to a certain place where you get a, a, a high number of the contingent of people that come in that stadium are, are fans, but they're casual fans. And they're there for this kind of experience, theater-like experience, the way that they see it going into that stadium. You know, entertain me. I'm not a part of this process. Um, I, I can't put it solely to that because I don't understand what causes you to live in the Pacific Northwest and you've been born here and you know what time it is when you walk into the stadium, but you suddenly get a little a couple extra dollars in your pocketbook and that makes you forget that you're supposed to scream when you go in the stadium when this was well understood um, across the landscape. Now, we got a lot of transplants here and people that may not born here are not aware of it, but there's no doubt about it. I've been in there a variety of times over the last 10 years and you know there are huge swaths of the stadium that are quiet. And you can get mad at that and whatever. It's the truth. I've heard it from a variety of other people who have seen the same thing. It's not that the whole stadium's quiet. It isn't that there isn't parts of the stadium being loud. It's that you have too big, too many places on the stadium where people are just staying, just being quiet. And they've decided that, hey, I paid my ticket and I don't have to say anything. And make of that what you will at that point. But that does mean that the home advantage gets lost at that point because that was at the forefront of it was that we were loud and we were always loud. I think one other thing I'll put to this, Brendan, which is one little final factor. And that is that when you have a bend but don't break defense and you have a defense that doesn't get off the football field and it's third down, now everybody's on their feet. Third and eight. First down. First, second, third. Third and eight here. Third and eight here. First down. Okay? So you get a 15-play drive and six first down conversions and the defense not stopping because the Legion of Boom would get the stops. They get off the actual football field, allowing for some of the loudness. To, but I think you get guys, you get, sometimes the fans get as exhausted over the course of the game. They get to the third, fourth quarter, and you've been giving up endless amounts of third downs over the course of the game, like that Rams game, which nine of 17 on third down conversions. I think a little bit of the spirit gets kind of, 
you know, because that's where the loudness comes into play is when the defense is doing something, when the defense gets, you know, really, that's when they're really connected to the fans. But I think it's all three of those things down the line. Um, yeah. And unfortunately, in my opinion, it's not coming back. So, well, here's my thing with it. That would explain why the team is not any better at home than they are on the road. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it explains why they're worse. And if they are truly worse, I don't know if they actually are. I haven't looked at the numbers in a while. Like in 2020, we were almost undefeated at home. That was the COVID year, of course. So I think we're three. Yeah, we're like three games above 500 since 2019 on the road. And we're three games under 500 at home since 2019. When you take the COVID year out, which was four and four anyway. So, you know, it's, it's not a substantial difference is what I'm saying between those two numbers. Right. Right. Like it's, it's too small of a, it's, it's close enough to be basically the same. Yeah. So uh, yeah, the, the idea of being like in order to be better on the road than at home, that implies you have like a toxic fan base that immediately starts booing you every time something goes wrong. And it's, it's like almost like a, maybe a Philadelphia home crowd. I can see that for like a bad Eagles team. They just start to get really, really testy and really, really toxic when they start losing something like that then I could see you being better at on the road than at home. But for this team, it, it's kind of weird. It is weird. Um, but I, I do track it back to those things I said. And I think it's, it's not a substantial enough difference with the road. It's not like you're, you know, way better on the road. You're a little bit better on the road. You know, you're just a smidge and just a little tiny bit better. So it's, to me, that's too close of a, of a deal there to say that there's much of a difference between the two. The more substantial thing here is that you don't have a winning record at home. That's really the more, you know, substantial thing than how you're playing on the road here. And to me, that's where we come back to that noise. And you're just, I mean, you're not generating false starts like you used to. You're not, I mean, how we had a game in 2005, Brendan, where the fans won the game, you know, yeah. they caused 12 false start penalties. The players will tell you that played in that game that day, they'll tell you the fans won us that game, including Mike Holmgren himself. Um, so, you just you've lost it. I'd I'd love to recapture it. Maybe there will be a way that they can do it eventually on that. But there is a bit of a spirit that's lost, and it's sad walking in there, Brendan. When you look along and you can see three rows of people sitting there, and they're not standing, and they're just being quiet, and they're just stuffing their face full of food, and you just go, "Hey, I get it. You got the right. You bought the ticket. You can experience this however you want to experience it. I understand that." But man, we had a tradition here. You know, we all knew what time it was. And whatever walk of life, whatever your whatever you made. I mean, in the '80s, this is how it was. Like you. You could be rich, you could be poor, you walk in that stadium. It didn't matter whether, and then people have told me this too, Brian. Well, do you haven't been good? Do you haven't been like, hey, the team wasn't good in the 80s all the time. It didn't stop people from being as loud as they possibly could. It didn't stop us from getting to a place where we caused the NFL to create a rule just to shut us up. I mean, we're a far cry from that now. And it does kind of annoy me a little bit because it's like, come on, man. Come on, Seattleites. Come on, Pacific Northwesters. We know what we do. This is this is who we are. This is our identity. And it's it's kind of slipping through our fingers a little bit here. Right. Okay, so I think we're all caught up on donos. Thank you, everybody, for supporting the show, as you always do. Love it. And uh, let's talk about this offense now. Let's uh, talk about, like I said, the fun stuff, because, wow, was that an unrecognizable performance after what we saw week one. There is practically no correlation between what we saw week one versus week two. And, again, I'm sitting here trying to think of one guy on offense who did not play good. And I cannot come up with anything. If you suited up and played for the offense on Sunday, you did your job. That that's how I feel about it. So let's start with uh, let's start with the nominee for Air Player of the Week. Let's talk about the game Geno Smith had because he had 
some of the fan base not so sure about him after that week one game. People were down on him a little bit. And then he does that. Let, let, let's let's talk about him. Yeah, I didn't understand as much the shade on the offense in week one. I mean, they started out three, four straight drives with scoring drives. And, you know, the defense just couldn't get a single stop. And then everybody goes, well, you only got the four yards after the second half, which I guess is, yeah, that's the truth. But that's also with you losing those two tackles, which you hadn't planned on in that game. You didn't have a game plan to just adjust in that moment to the backup tackles. You know, the NFL doesn't kind of work that way and make it that easy of a transition, seamless of a transition in the moment when you sustain that. Um, this was what Gino gave us through 12 games last year, which was either good to great play. This game was on the great side of it. And this is as high a degree of difficulty kind of game for Gino Smith to work for than he's ever had here. In fact, I think it is his most in, it is his best performance when you consider what he was up against. A Lions team that's a strong team. I know they're not driven by their defense, but that's a tough team to go up against. That's a defense that can be multiple and not the easiest to play against. You're down, you're starting two tackles, which means that there's going to be a lot of chip blocks. There's going to be a lot of helping them out on the day, which means that's one less receiver for you to have a run route. You were not going to be able to hold the ball on seven-step drops and let those long developing routes happen because they were going to get the pass rush to you by that point with those backup tackles. By the way, you had to plan this. So he had to be all that successful within all that. And not only was he successful or somewhat productive with all that, he totally flourished. He balled out. And uh, this was a game that I thought he was just really, really oppressive across the board and every kind of throw that you could ask for um, from showing off the arm strength and the velocity to the ball placement, to the decision-making, to the control at the line of scrimmage and changing into the right plays. When he got a seven-man box, he'd change into a run. If he saw the eight-man box, he'd change it back into a pass. You know, he was trying to find that advantage in this game where he could. And that's what you needed to do when you were coming into this game shorthanded like they were. Very impressed by how Gino played in this game. Um, just this is this was awesome on his part. Yeah. Uh, after the game, I kind of referred to it as this perfect. We had perfect harmony between Gino Smith, our two backup tackles, and Shane Waldron. Like mm. all four of those guys combined, because the tackles played good. But you also had Waldron coming up with a game plan that would enable them to look good. Like there were a lot of tight ends in this game, a lot of help. We weren't putting a ton on those guys. And you also had Gino doing a phenomenal job of moving in the pocket. Like there were pressures in this game. Gino got pressured, but he only got hit once this whole game, which is incredible, which is a miracle. We have Stone Forsyth out there for 70 plus snaps and Gino Smith gets hit once. That's amazing. I, I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing for most of that game. and. While you're right that Gino was getting the ball out relatively quickly, it wasn't it wasn't like a Jimmy Garoppolo type game. No. Uh, PFF had his time to throw at 3.11 seconds, which is above average. Mm -hmm. So he was making things happen in the pocket by moving around well. He was adapting what he did from play to play based on what was there. There were several plays where the pressure got to him immediately and he just flipped it out to the tight end or flipped yeah. it out to the running back. And then there were plays where the protection was there. Like, um, watch Stone Forsyth in the OT session, by the way. He oh, yeah. was excellent in OT. I don't know where that came from, but it was great. And on those plays, he took his time because he had the time to take. It was a beautifully managed game by Geno Smith. And um, it's not the best game he's played as a Seahawk, but it is right up there. I don't know. For my money, it's the best because I think in other games, he wasn't set as far behind in the degree of difficulty. I mean, I think he performed every bit as good as whatever best game he performed, but he also had the backup tackles in there. And as good as they played, 
he still had to work around that. That still made the job for him, you know, harder on the day to pull it off. And he did it seamlessly. You're right. The pocket movement was outstanding, climbing the ladder, taking a couple subtle steps backwards to sort of just create that extra bit of time for the receiver to get his route run and give the give the tackles a little bit of extra time in their block. If the guy does get free and loose, um, you know, he just was he was great. He was just great across the board today. And you're right about pointing out Waldron. We got to give him his his uh, bouquet in this game as well, because he called an extraordinary game for what he had to deal with on his end of things here. And, uh, you know, didn't miss a beat. Didn't, they were productive throughout. They had offensive um, drives throughout just, and the play calling was, he was very, they did. You couldn't, the lines couldn't get pinned down on exactly what we were going to do. You know, they didn't, you didn't know play to play what they were going to do. And that's what a good offensive coordinator does is he keeps the defensive coordinator kind of really never feeling quite what he can guess what you're doing. Never a step ahead, always a step behind. Yeah, yeah, it was um, really phenomenal stuff. And I'm really happy that I didn't have to get on here after that game and talk about that last sack he took because, don't get me wrong, that was bad. That was that was a really ugly-looking play. That was, you know, some people were making the joke that, oh, that was like what Wilson used to do. And I was thinking to myself, not even. That's like what Johnny Manziel would do. And I'm so <sighs> glad that he was able to go back out there and redeem himself so beautifully after that because after the game that he played, it would have been really too bad if we had to get on here and blame him for the way that game ended. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't have been able to hammer him too much on that at that point myself. I mean, I have seen Walt Russell take those kind of sacks in the past before um, when he's run around. And it's not a uh, it's not good decision-making on his part. But, you know, over the course of this game, I think you have two two plays that you can you can ding Gino on or you can go at Gino on. And coming into this game and to, and to come out the other end of it and go, okay, your quarterback played all these plays, carried the day for your 300, 300 yards. And yet, and even this is even if we'd like come on with a loss, we're at 31 points or we're at 29 points. You know, he, you're still coming out with well over 300 yards and he has two bad plays for you on the day, basically. You know, one where he scrambles back too far and the other one where he throws to the sideline a route, which just about could have been pick sixed uh, if he didn't put the ball a little bit further away like he did. But outside of that, I mean, he played pretty much flawless football across the board. So, you know, that's, it's hard to get that kind of performance out of your quarterback and any, yeah. any quarterback in any given week. And so I, yeah, I wouldn't be able to quite, even if he had had that happen, do that because there was too much other good to great in this game yeah. across the board. Yeah. He even overcame the grounding call, which was BS. He Completely overcame BS. that because we scored a touchdown on that drive. Like yeah. think about how derailing that play should have been. That should have killed the drive. That should have been like the end 10 yard loss and loss of down. Like that should be, dead drive and we still score a touchdown that's amazing to me well this was the narrative with gino right i mean this is two narratives that he he has to me in my opinion already disproven these narratives but they still exist in some of the seahawk fan base which is that oh well if you need the game on the line you need him to go drive and get you the game he's just gonna he's gonna tank he just doesn't have the fortitude to stand up and answer that bell i've heard that over a variety of different times within my chat and so you like you talk about that grounding penalty in that moment coach carroll over there freaking out Gino's upset and angry. The officials telling him I'm talking to America. It's a, it's a little of pandemonium in that moment, but kind of like we saw Gino last year in like the Chargers game when you you know had the same bad call and then Coach Carroll comes out and does the the calming stomach move to Gino and Gino comes right back and laces a third down completion to Tyler Lockett. He's had these moments where he has been a, the calm in the storm at times. And he was in this game. He was after that moment, the decision-making to scramble in that moment, go get those yards there. That's the one place with Gino I'd like to see him as he goes forward through the year here is take a little bit more of those yards on the ground because teams are not 
quarterback spying you. They're dropping with depth into coverage. They're giving you sometimes seven, eight, nine yards in front of you to go get um, if you do choose to go up there and scramble at times. But his decision-making was so smart in that game, and that's such a big play coming on the back of that for where you are to go get those yards back, to put yourself in that position, um, to, to still go out there and have that impact in that play. But uh, he was great, man. He was absolutely yeah. just sensational. Yeah, and I, I'm trying to tell people, I hope you guys understand what we have here with, with what we have with Geno Smith. I'm seeing all these super high-paid quarterbacks not coming through. Like, we're especially, you know, last night, great example, Deshaun Watson. And he's becoming kind of the patient zero of that. But the fact that we got this guy, Geno Smith, who's playing for less than half of what those top guys are making, I just hope, I just really hope that people understand how amazing that is. Because nobody else is doing that. Even Mahomes got his pay bump now. Yeah, he's, even he's now getting up a little bit up more to the, the closer to the top of the stack. Um, I keep trying to make the same case to folks. There's there's a contingent of folks that you know this, have an ax to grind for whatever reason with Gino, or that they've just had it in their mindset. He is what he is, is what they like to say, that he can never be more than that. Um, I don't I don't know if he could stack, you know, four straight 4,500 yard seasons and they wouldn't still kind of think that. Maybe they would, maybe they wouldn't. I don't know, but they, they definitely are still... Um, there's still a vocal minority of folks out there. They're not a big contingent, but there's a contingent out there. I hear about him where it's like, just, they, they can't get sold on it, but he should with these kind of performances. He didn't just go out there and get you a field goal. He didn't take this down there and go, okay, my defense needs to now finish this off. He went down there and they went and took and got a touchdown. He said, I'm going to go get this win. I'm going to go take this game in a day where you're offensively, where you were offensively proficient throughout the course of the game. And you had to be so to win it much like last year. So he's done it multiple times over now to just one team alone. So, yeah, we've got to start, I think, dishing, uh, tossing away some of those kind of tired narratives in regards to Gino. Yeah, and again, the fact that he's doing it for this discount is, that that's the thing that really gets me. Like, you're seeing some of these quarterbacks who got paid massive amounts of money not be that guy for their teams right now. Mm -hmm. And we have a guy who I know he's not as good as Justin Herbert. I know that. I know he's not as good as Herbert. I know he's not as good as Burrow or Mahomes. But I think there's a real interesting question you could ask. Would you rather have Herbert for $55 million a year or would you rather have Geno for $25? I think that's at least a question. I would still take Herbert, but I think that's an interesting debate. It is an interesting debate. And yeah, I don't know, to be honest with you, I don't know how I would necessarily fall. I'd probably have to want to give it a little bit more thought and sit down and, and turn it over just a little bit. I mean, I'd probably still end up landing on Herbert, but I think it still doesn't still makes it a really good question. And um, yeah, he is, it's the part of that you've, you, you should also enjoy about Gino on top of these things that have to do with on the field, the off the field leadership, work ethic, being one of the few quarterbacks in the last 10 years to take less than they probably could have ultimately gotten out on the open market. Um, you know, $10 million cost this year on the cap is what Gino's running. It goes up next year, but to, to, to give the Seahawks that kind of deal to build the kind of team they've been able to build up on top of it is tremendous. And uh, why I think you guys hear us speak as praises so often is because it isn't just in regards to one mere thing. It ain't just in regards to the performance. It's all, all these other things that impact the team that are very important for the quarterback to be, in my opinion, to be bringing to the, to the table, you know, as I, as a quarterback, Brendan, I mean, think about the weight that it carries coming to that room as a leader. And, you know, yeah, I'm a quarterback and I took less. That's how much winning important is important to me. Is it winning is into you? How is it? How much is important to you? Oh, wow. Yeah, he did. And I mean, maybe there is a bigger thing at play here than just, you know, I think it's a, it's a strong, it can be a strong sign. I think to the younger players. Yeah. 
So, yeah, Gino played awesome. He had, like, maybe one or two bad plays that whole game. Uh, one of them was bad in a very visceral and clear and way, so it, it feels like, oh, man, how, how did that happen? But it's easy to get over, especially now, because he came back out, right back out and won that game. It's the Benny Hill play, Brendan, right? Mm -hmm. the Benny, that's what somebody said in my chat on the day. It was like, it's the Benny Hill music goes on as he's scrambling backwards and forwards and, you know, and it does look bad. That's that and, is true. You know, even on that play, I know what he's thinking, right? He's thinking, I got to get the clock. I got to let the clock to roll. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I know what the thought process is. He still shouldn't have done it, but it's not like he his brain shut down. His brain was exactly. working. Exactly. Yeah. That, and that's why I give it a little bit more room to where I don't hit it as being some, you know, horrific move because it's your, your heart was in the right place there. You didn't just do the complete brain dead. You know, I'm going to lose my mind. You were, you were thinking you had a strategy. <laughs> it may have been the yeah. wrong strategy, but there was a strategy. Yeah. It's like uh, last year in the second Broncos Raiders game where all Russ has to do is fall down, take a sack and the game's basically over because there's only a couple minutes left in the Denver's ahead. Yeah. There's actually like a minute left. Instead, he throws it out of bounds, stops the clock. Raiders get the ball back, go and tie it, and then win it in OT. That's just like, there's no benefit to you throwing the ball out of bounds. You're still no. going to get hit, by the way. So it's not yeah. like you're saving yourself the hit. Uh, the couple of yards you save don't matter. Like, like, There's nothing there. At least I can follow the thought process with this one. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean and you should have thrown it away, but it's... You, you, it was right there at that two minute warning. He did get it down to the two minute warning. So technically he did, you know, from his mind, at least, you know, that's one less stoppage of the clock they've got now. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you'd ideally just throw it away. Well, what he should have done is the old uh, Jay Cutler move where you just throw it as far as you can, as high as you can out of bounds. That, yeah. Because time keeps rolling until the ball hits the ground. That's true. That's true. Yeah. That, that would be the move to go with on that one for sure. And he had the moment when he's rolling to his right, that final last thing. He kind of finally had like just, all you got to yeah. just get it up to the line of scrimmage there. Just whoop it. He's got the arm for it. He does. Yeah. Uh, okay. Offensive line. I already talked about Forsyth and Curran, who played way over their heads, way better than I think any rational person could have expected. But whole offensive line, pretty dang good. Your quarterback got hit once that whole game. You did something right. Yeah, I'd, I'd love it if you could explain to me what the hell happened with uh, Damian Lewis um, as far as I, – I don't know what to make of this guy anymore. I don't know who he is. Um, he's become a pass-protecting left guard, I guess. Is uh, that, that's is where that, the money is. I, 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 it's, he's taken himself from a, a pure right guard, road grading uh, you know, type of cat to you flip him to left guard now and he's suddenly this – uh, pass protecting maestro at back out there. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but that's just how he rolls now, I guess. But yeah, he was good over there in that in that realm. He can't run block as well now, though. That's the sad part here, Brendan, is that Lewis's run blocking grades have, as the pass blocking has gone off, the run blocking has gone down into the toilet. So that's the kind of the unfortunate part, and that's been carrying on since back to last year, even with him. Um, but Brown's been steady. He went out a little bit in this game, but when he's been in there, I think he's been really steady for you and and good for you in that center. Certainly, I think he's been an upgrade over what you had in Blythe last year right now mm -hmm. so far. Yeah. So uh, I, I'm encouraged by what I see with him. And and Haynes has been, I think, kind of one of your weak links on the line so so far to begin things. Yeah. He, he didn't do anything to make me angry at him in that game, no. I don't think, though. It wasn't anything bad. He just doesn't do anything real yeah, like Damian Lewis had the one play where we ran the screen to JSN and he didn't get out far enough to block for mm -hmm. it. Yeah, that's not his game anyway. So no. I don't even know how to feel about that. Like, is that really his fault? 
he just can't do it. That's why yeah. they're probably not going to sign him to a contract extension. At the end of the day, he's not really a fit for their offense. Yeah. And and by the way, I think it's the right call. I really like this guard class in this draft. Yeah. I think there are some guys. Well, especially considering our cap situation, you know, we're going to have to make some tough. We're going to have to make some tough calls somewhere to a degree. Not like we're going to have to shave salary or cut guys, but like we're not going to be able to just while well, we resign everybody, bring the whole band back. Like we're going to have to probably do a little bit of picking and choosing, even with guys who might be decent players. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see here. What else is there? Uh, Oluwatimi got in the game for a few plays. Didn't do anything too bad. Played all right, I'd say. I haven't had a chance to really check out the six snaps he had, so I, I didn't get a, too much to lock in on him with that, unfortunately. Yeah, people are uh, um, people are going to get pretty excited about that, I think. But uh, Evan Brown looked genuinely good, so I'm not thinking about a switch there yet. I think that Evan Brown guy is a little more solid than some people gave him credit for. People seemed very like very apathetic about him when we signed him, but he's a decent player. I'm really high on Olatimi. I think he's your long-term answer at center. I do, but I think Brown for this year probably is solidifying himself in there as the starter for the time being, and uh, that's. He's been very, very workable. Again, a very big upgrade over what we've had there recently, which is just what we needed. We need to take this off a league-worst position play, get it back up into more middle-of-the-road minimum, and he's providing you a pathway to getting that done. Okay, so um, receivers. Talk about this uh, skill position, receivers, however you want to put it. Uh, Pretty much everybody showed up for this one, and we needed it because Geno needed to have a big game, but everybody showed up to the party this time. Yeah, uh, the efficiency was the name of the game in this game. Twenty, You have 24 targets out to your receivers on the outside. I believe that you had 21 completions on those 24 targets. That is a phenomenal conversion rate when you're talking about throwing to receivers on the outside. And there was no team, I would reckon, the NFL over this past two weeks of play that have come anywhere near close to you know getting those same kind of numbers in that efficiency side of things, right? From an efficiency, it just doesn't it? You, you Whenever you throw it to them, they're going to make that catch. And uh, they played outstanding football. Tyler Lockett, obviously, two touchdown receptions. Um, he was really good in this game. Um, what can we say about him other than just he's just a great route runner, still still got it as a receiver. He can still go out there and get it done. He's maybe not as fast as he once was, but he can still be a very productive receiver with his understanding and knowledge of the game and how to get open. Um, DK Metcalf, I thought, had another really solid game out there again today. Throw him the ball. He's making his catches. The drop stuff has not been a big big an element over the last year and a half or so. Um, he's continued building that. His route running has continued to look pretty, sol- pretty, um, pretty solid in this one. Um, the catch he made there at the end where he's down by the goal line. It's like, it's a tough catch. You know, Gino's trying. And what's funny about that is he has kind of that rib thing happen there where Gino's trying to throw the ball away from the safety to protect DK, but the safety's just screaming in there. Uh, takes the hit, makes the catch, um, strong on DK. You got to give him props too, because the man's got to be tough as nails. I'd reckon to guess that if that rib isn't broken, it's probably cracked. And to come back out and play through that, and maybe he got a shot, maybe not, but that's that's strength. That's tough to do that. And he didn't he didn't diminish himself at that point. He didn't come on the football field and, and oh, you can't I can't come anywhere near playing like I did before. He still made some big time catches at that point. So that everybody made their catches here. I know Jackson Smith, everybody's chomping at the bit here, Brendan, to get him in more and play him more. You couldn't do that by the nature of this. We talked about this in the preview show. You're going to bring the two and three tight end sets into this game more to help out on the chip blocks. That was going to be a direct 
directing then to the number of snaps that Jackson Smith was going to get in this game. And he still got five catches on six targets, not for a lot of yards. He's not yet had the impact some are looking from now, but that was steady. And he was part of a receiving core to come out again, 21 of 24 attempts, 24 attempts, 24 times I'm going to throw the ball, 21 times I'm going to have completions on those 24 attempts. That's phenomenal. So those receivers all did their job. And uh, it was great that everybody chipped in, even Jake Bobo with what the one three hard catch on one target. His uh, Jake Bobo's run block rate on PFF is 92.4, by the way. He's a monster. Yeah. Yeah. And it's got to put that one out there. No, it's it's worth putting out there, too, because you have openings here as we go into the season of putting both him and DK DK and and Jake out there at times where you've got two really up top notch, really good run blocking uh, receivers out there on the outside now that you can. Um, you know, make things very difficult on defenses, especially when you start getting some of those cornerbacks like we talked to the top of this show that are those types that want to, you know, lean away from the contact, lean away from having to get in and help make a tackle. And you got some six foot four, six foot five monster blocking you. It just makes you lean all that much more into those into those instincts to make business decisions. Yeah. Um, so about Metcalf. Uh, it was not a great week for him, obviously, with uh, some of the stuff that happened at the end of that last game. And then Carol even came out and talked about how that stuff needs to stop. And obviously, he and Carol had a conversation about it. And you know how some fans can get about Metcalf whenever he does anything wrong. Like, like there's a subset of this Seahawks fan base that just doesn't like him very much and isn't uh, and is kind of looking to run him down, I think, a little bit when these things happen. Um. Right. Hopefully, after that game, I hope these people are willing to lay off of him because he was clearly hurt. He was clearly hurt. It's not like they looked at him and said, oh, everything's okay, get back out there. No, he's. Uh, it could go one way or the other, and I think a lot of players out there would have said, no, okay, I guess I'm done for the day. But DK didn't do that. He went back out there, and he contributed big time, contributed big time to this win. Uh, he made five catches after those injuries. No drops. He caught every pass that was thrown his way in this game. Six for six. Um, he's already gotten paid, by the way. It's not like he's forcing himself out there because I need that next contract. No, he's already got the contract. Mm-hmm. But he's going out there. And, you know, whatever you want to say about him, I know there are some things that you can say about him in the negative, but I think we can definitely say he's tough. Like, this is a guy who plays through stuff. And today, and this Sunday may have been the best example of it ever. Yeah, we know that he had a season. He went through a foot injury, still put up a thousand yards. We we know that he had a season where um, he was dealing with uh, injuries. I forget somewhere else there was something he had that he had that year that he was fighting through too. I forget what it was, um, but he still put up put up his production. Oh, the patella. He had the patella thing with the Chargers last year. Remember, goes yeah, out he, that missed, game uh, he did miss mo- the rest of that game, but he came back. People said he was going to miss like a month, and he didn't yeah. even miss a game. Didn't miss a game. Came right back. Um, you mentioned that the, there is, yeah, there is some fans out there that that are very hard on DK and have a certain standard in place for where they believe he needs to be, and that he's fallen short of that. Um, I've never been in that place with him. Um, to me, he is a guy that's one of my favorite players on this team because of how he plays, because he shows up every week, because whether he's injured or not, he's going to play hard. There's guys that I've had over the last couple of years that I've questioned whether or not you know, they're all in. They've tapped that sign, but were you really all in on that football field? Were you giving up blood and guts? Were you doing what it was going to take to win the football game? And with DK, the answer has always been a resounding yes. Were the fumbles a problem? Yeah, you know what the fumbles came from? Was it being him lackadaisical with the ball, with him not caring? notes because he's trying to grind and fight for every last yard if a guy makes a mistake because it's passion that's taken him it's a guy make a mistake because he's trying to do every last thing that he can get every last bit and inch that he can 
I'm not going to bang on that as hard as I am that the guy that doesn't give that kind of effort out. And I will be much more quick, quicker and closer to celebrating that guy for what he's bringing to the table. And that's why I'm one of the bigger backers of DK because he is that way. He shows up every week. He produces every year. He's been one of the most productive receivers in NFL history before the age of 25, and he just turned 25. And he also happens to block every single week like a monster in the run game. I I have nothing but praise for him. I didn't. I I really don't get as up in arms as some do with the penalty stuff. I I just think that it's a, a price that I'm perfectly happy to pay. I don't think it's cost us a game. I don't think it'll cost us a game in the future. I think he's caused a lot of pi, a lot of uh, you know penalties on the other side by the way he plays on the other side. So, you know, I I know that that, that um, I think it's right for Carol to talk to him about it because I think Carol's point on this was that you don't want teams to be able to control you which is the most important part there. And that's the part yeah. I think is valid. You don't want them to be able to control DK, but at the same point in time, this stuff isn't coming from a bad place, I guess, you know, or not, what I would look at as an unhealthy football place, something to be corrected, but these are all, you know, he's a way more, way, way more good uh, than, than bad. Absolutely. Uh, I don't, I don't think Metcalf has ever really done anything in his time as a Seahawk that is, like like conniving or manipulative or you know trying to drag things down the way that you see some of these diva receivers get into sometimes. Agreed. Yeah, I agreed hundred percent. And I, I it's the it's not a perfect player, but my God, he's a, a great player. And we've got other other things on this team that need to be fixed and issues to be cleaned up. And he just doesn't come to anywhere near the head of my list when I look at that list. Um, tight end usage. We already talked about this a little bit, but it, it, it was kind of a no brainer because of the tackle situation with Forsyth and Kerhan, but, uh, a lot of tight ends in this game and all three of them, I think played well, especially, and this is going to be a little under the radar because it's blocking stuff, but Disley is blocking really, really well so far this year, I think on top of making meaningful contributions in the passing game. Yeah, I, all three all three tight ends very impressive in this game. They made the most of the targets that were thrown their way. They're sure-handed. This goes back to last year where they showed that off. Noah Fan showed you some of the big playability that he can bring to the table um, with that throw down the sideline. Um, and Disley's a guy that that another guy that's just like last year. Well, can we get you already had people last year talking about cutting him? It's like yeah, the guy brings a lot of value to this team. He is your best blocker all the way around, and he's a run blocker and a pass protector. So he's a guy that gives you both of those two things he does well. He's also sure-handed as hell. If you look at this guy and his catch rate for his career, it's like 90% his catch rate. It's obscene. Um, he gives you a little bit of yak after the catches he did this last week in addition to that. Um, is he you know, in contention for one of the better tight ends in the league? No, but he does have a lot of value he brings. And uh, all these tight ends kind of fit into their particular role right now. It was great to see Brendan. This is why you got the Cerebus. This is why you have those three tight ends for this kind of week if you had to call upon them. It's part of we talked about this this year is that, you know, we thought about in a way of attacking a, an opponent's weaknesses, but it also could be called upon to overcome injury. You know, where you go, okay, our tackles are down. Oh, we got the two and three tight end sets to go to some of those shorter routes, to go to more of those heavy protection schemes to overcome that. And uh, that's part of the nice part of having such a deep offense as the Seahawks do have. Yeah. I didn't get the sense that Disley was doing anything great blocking last year, but so far this year, it seems like he's back. And um, that's really encouraging. No, he was good. He was good as a blocker last year. Yeah, he was good, but I think he's been great so far this year. Yeah, yeah. But he's just, he's all, he's always been good all the way around. And it's, yeah. you know, I mean, it's just been, that's been a common part to his game, but he's beast. Yeah. Uh, welcome uh, Noah Fant to the 2023 season. Uh, <laughs> he made our only down the field catch this whole game. I think 
Like he was mm-hmm. the only one to catch a pass that was more than 20 yards down the field when he caught it. Mm-hmm. And um, that was something that we didn't see a lot of last year. It was mostly short, quick stuff to Fant. But he can move. He can boogie down yeah. there. He can get down the field way faster than pretty much any linebacker. So you use him in that capacity, you're going to make some really big things happen. Yeah, I'd love to see them tap back more into that where you you know, you know bring him and you bring him out wide and then you draw into a linebacker to get him out wide and then ch- challenge a slow-footed linebacker to run up the field with him on a nine route, especially if you can remove the safety out of the, the deep end of the field there like they were on that play. Uh, a running game obviously was the one part of this offense that didn't work terribly well, but we were starting stone foresight that's expected. I don't know what you were expecting. Still have Phil Haynes out there. It's not going to be great run blocking. And Damian uh, Lewis. Yeah, and now Damian Lewis. I guess we got to say that too, right? <laughs> yeah. What was it? I mean, I think his grade was pretty – it was pretty low, if I remember. It just it stood was, out to me. I yeah, was like, yeah. what the hell, Damian? You used to be dominant in this. Let yeah. me see where he was at. He's at 50, um, 55-9 was his run blocking grade in this game. Yeah. Um, K-9 had one or two plays where I thought he was dancing a little too much, but for the most part, I think he got what was there. Like, he played fine. I think he had to dance. I mean, that's my thing with it is that watching these first two games, there's not been any traditional holes there really for him to go get. And he's had to get clear and free of to like the touchdown run. You know, that run's supposed to go up in the A gap. The first one, not this, not the first one, but the second run, you know, it's supposed to go up into the A gap. He just dances lateral wide, you know, just eventually gets wide to when there is a hole, when there is some clear space for him to then go and get the touchdown. Um, but I don't see there being a lot of holes early on that have been opened up. I think some of this also too, Brendan, was Detroit's commitment to the eight-man boxes. Their strategy, in my opinion, on this was, okay, Seattle, you're going to come into this game and you're going to try to lean on your running game to try to minimize the impact of your tackles and pass protection, especially deep drops. So what we're going to do is bring the eighth man in the box. And by bringing that eighth man in the box now, you're going to think, hey, we should love to go to our seven-man step drops now, hit our receivers deep on the outside. But you're not going to have time to make those long-developing plays happen because we're going to have the pass rush on your backup tackles back in your face before you have an opportunity to do that. So I, I think that they chose a little bit of a tactical approach of those stacked boxes, which clogged things up a little bit more down there for the run game. But to my eyes, I don't I don't think Walker was doing anything extraordinary from that. And what he had to do, he had to he was creating holes. He was getting extra yards. A lot of there was a lot of runs with him and Charbonnet in this game and have been early on this year where it's like they might get a one yard run, but it should have been a negative three, negative four yard play, you know, where it just they made something out of literally nothing. Yeah. Um, one thing about Walker that stood out to me in this game though, was short yardage. He had two short yardage touchdowns and he picked up the fourth down. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the area where he wasn't so good last year, right? That was the one thing he wasn't good in short yardage. So to see him come through in three short yardage situations in this game was, I think really good. It was, it was very good. And he's, I think he's looking a little more decisive to me this year. He's had to dance at times. But I think, you know, when eventually maybe some of those holes, and I think it'll get better as the year goes along, this stuff tends to kind of develop as the season goes along here. Um, Once he gets those holes, I think you're going to see him a little bit more in that decisive mode when it's there, when there's less of the light boxes down there a bit. Um, I thought Charbonnet looked way better. I know the stats weren't monstrous or anything, but there was at least, I want to say, two plays where Charbonnet picked up a blitz, which was huge to me. That's what I really wanted to see. thought that was Mm -hmm. great. Uh, he ran with power. He caught a couple passes. I really liked what I saw from Charbonnet, even though it was a very small sample size, personally. You're not looking to move Charbonnet to a starting job, though, right? No, no, of course, not at all. I think that Charbonnet yeah. should... I think more than even being a short yardage back, he's like a third down back. He's like an ideal third down back. 
Yeah. No, I loved what he, the, the one run he had where he had a four yard run. It's kind of like what I'm saying with these guys. It's like, if there's four yards or get six, if there's a negative three, they'll find a yard gain. But that one play where he was up, he had a four or five yard gain. And then he just banged through, found an extra like three or four yards, you know, very impressive. And he's shown you, Brendan, that he's going to be a physical back. Like he's going to bring that element of play of, I, you know, I'm going to be a hard guy to tackle. I'm going to, I can wear down a defense. I can make guys, you know, make those business decisions a bit. Um, that part has shown up in his game early on, even going back to the preseason games, like that Viking game where he had a couple of those moments he ran over guys. Um, he's been impressive. I've liked what I've seen out of Charbonnet so far. And I think him and, and Walker are going to work really well together as a combination. Yeah. Uh, so I'm pretty optimistic about where that's going. People were kind of, I didn't really know where it was coming from because he barely played. People were really giving it to Charbonnet. I found after uh, last week's game, people kind of, talking junk about him i'm like come on guys give him more than 11 snaps before you start turning yeah him, dude i i think that's that's what he was they were doing is that they were going you know well two touches for a second round pick we could have had insert the name of whoever they wanted in that second round pick and yeah. you know the the thing with the charbonnet selection is it wasn't just about every game how many touches you're getting out of it it was also for the insurance to keep the position strong through injury if Walker goes down, we don't fall off a cliff to a league average running back. You know, you don't miss a bit of a step there. You can maintain a guy that's a bit of a difference maker back there. That's that's kind of what the, the tangible decision they made there. And if you have both guys healthy, then that means that his impact is not going to be great because of that. But that doesn't make it a bad pick or doesn't mean that he's then help, not helping the team out or won't help this team out over the course of the season. Uh, okay. I think that's basically the offense, man. There's not much of anything to say other than they brought their big boy pants and we needed every bit of it. We needed every bit of it for that game. And we're going to need it for this season, Brendan. I mean, the defense is going to hopefully be an improving part to the team, but it's best case scenario to me was always going to be around the middle of the road. You needed the offense to be a top five offense. You need the offense to be a top, not maybe top three, but at least top five offense across the board. And they showed you today in this, in that game against Detroit with those backup tackles that they can absolutely be that way. They can, that can be an identity of the team as we go forward. And uh, I would expect it to be the Rams week was a weird one, but it wasn't that they weren't, finding some productivity there either. It wasn't like this just came up this week. You had those, what, four straight drives to start that Rams game where you had scoring drives, a missed field goal and three drives where you scored. Mm. So, you know, this they're going to be fine and they're going to be a driver of this team when it's all said and done. Yeah, and um, we got a few more chats to take a look at here. We got Feed Me More Legos. Thank you for the $2. Hot take, Jamal Adams, comeback player of the year. We've been over this, guys. We've been over this. Do not comeback player of the year has already been handed out. You just we just haven't seen the ceremony yet. I don't know if they're going to give it to him if he's not active though. And well, he's, he's going to be in... active at some point. They're going to wait for like probably a home game or something. They're going to wait for like a the right moment to do it. You know they're going to do it. Yeah, I mean maybe that is the way. And and he certainly is the front runner being the Buffalo Bills. Um, you know, Ham Hamlin kid, but I mean, if he doesn't play, then it's a little bit more open up. It's going to be hard though. Feed me more Legos because even if Jamal comes back this week, I think that they're not going to give him a full run of snaps. You know, he might not be back to really fully starting until we get back to the, we're really full and running full time until we get back to after the, the buy, but um, we'll see. It'll be an interesting part this week to see if that, that comes more to the table, if they look to bring him in and he's just chomping to the bit. Yeah. I have a theory that they didn't want him active for week one even though that was a primetime game because that was the Aaron Rodgers show. That was the overarching story. Aaron Rodgers' first game as a Jet. 
and they're playing primetime. I think we got a week. What is this week six? Yeah, week six, Sunday night football against the Giants at home. If they haven't activated Hamlin by then, I think that's going to be the game. It's going to be just like that game where the Patriots remember Teddy Bruschi mm-hmm. had the hole in his heart. Yeah, it was supposed to be done, and they brought him back on Sunday night football, and every single commercial bumper was Teddy Bruschi. Oh yeah, it's going to be like that. I could see it, especially the Buffalo Bills if they're needing a bit of an injection of energy at that point. You know, let's get a little shot of energy. This will help the team. Uh, that certainly would probably do that. Mm-hmm. Okay, Tony, thank you for the four ninety nine. Before last year, saying Gino is clutch would sound like a joke. Can't believe he really is. <laughs> That's uh, that was the sentiment that was out there, Tony, and it's one that I've been trying to say. Hey, I don't, I don't know if that is the case. Um, the man now has nine game winning drives in the course of his career. He's had three seasons of fully starting. I, it's not to say it's a lot. Like I was kind of saying in my wrap up video this week, it's not to say that he's John Elway reborn, but also to say that the guy can't lead a comeback victory. Doesn't the data doesn't match that, you know, in, in those three years of starting um, it is something he's capable of. And uh, I, you know, I don't know if we can go to full on yet, Tony, to say if he's, he's clutch, but to say that he's got some clutch traits or some clutch like traits to him and, and some of what he shows that calmness, um, that ability to play in some of the big moments when you need him to, um, he has shown a little bit of that. Yeah. And, and I think last week was a, a pretty, pretty resounding period to that a bit and how he did what he did where, you know, played great offensively all the way through. And then you have to take your team at the end on a final drive to go score and, and not only settle for a field goal, but to go get the touchdown, um, that, and play great throughout that whole drive. He was money that drive. He was nails that drive. He was on every little detail. He was yeah. locked. In. Um, it's, it's impressive, and I think we're starting to get to that place. We're going to have to start saying that, Tony. Yeah, to me, clutch, the whole clutch thing is kind of weird, right? Because it's not like these players are taking a bunch of pills, right, before a clutch moment, and the pills make them better players, right? It's not some discrete, concrete thing. I, like, like, there are moments where the most clutch players in the history of sports have had the opportunity to be clutch, and they just haven't been. So mm-hmm. it, it's a very abstract thing. I feel like I think I think it's more just about being able to keep your head in a stressful situation. I think that's really what it's about more than like, oh, he's got this many touchdowns with this amount of time left in the game. And when the team is down, like like it, it's more just like an abstract thing of like, does he look like he's still in control? Yeah, it's definitely a subjective deal as to whether or not a guy has it or not. Um, you know, there's stats you can look at for certain 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 sports that you can look at. A you know, baseball you can look at a guy. Well, how is he with runners in scoring position? Right. Um, there's these certain things that that are out there. Maybe that you can look at. And football is harder to get a metric for that. So it's a, it sort of is one of those things where you see it when you you know when you see it. I think it's more of that you see it on more than there being so many guys that are clutch. It's that you see so many of the guys who do get tight where things do seem to get a little bit more compressed and compact for them in those moments where they're then called upon and that you can feel that in certain guys that are out there. And sometimes it's not fair when it's applied to certain guys. Sometimes it is, but there are those people out there where if it is a guy like if, if Gina was to be that kind of guy, who is that guy that does just get tight in those moments, we would have seen enough data in these last two years to know he is that kind of guy. If he was on that other end of the scale uh, and he certainly is not. To that yeah. degree, but I think there is, you get, you get, and then that game, you get nervous, your hands start shaking a little bit, the extra adrenaline shooting through your body. And it's, you know, how do you control that now? Can you, can you push that into place of being productive or does that just sort of overwhelm you now and, and become this, you know, noise you, this, that's overtaking everything and you're including your ability to process. 
Yeah. Like uh, uh, Clayton Kershaw. That's an example. There's something going on there. I don't know what it is, mm -hmm. but yeah. we have decades of evidence. I, I think his ERA is like the worst ever of any pitcher in the playoffs who's had mm -hmm. 100 plus innings or something like that. Yeah. Like there's something there. I don't know what it is. It do I can't really explain it, but there's clearly some issue that he has when he gets to that point. Yeah, there's no easy gauge of it, but it, it does exist. It is there. It is a real thing. And you see it across sports. And, you know, I, I'm sure that if you went to basketball teams and you went to every one of the 32 teams and you took those guys and you said, hey, uh, 12 guys that are on the bench, whatever they got now, 15 guys, whatever they're at now, as far as guys on the bench, you know, who's who's the one player on this team that you would not want to give a shot at the end of the game that you couldn't trust? And I think there, you'd find a certain answer for me for any one given team of a player that eh, when the moment's big, get the ball out of his hands. He gets a little. He gets a little nervous. His hands get a little bit sweaty. You know, ball gets a little slick in his hands once. Yeah, that moment gets big. Uh, let's see here, Garth Knight. Thank you for the four ninety nine. If Brando signs off on DK, I'm sold. Carolina didn't look so hot last evening, but I think their defense is legit. It's it's they hung tough even after losing the guys. Yeah, first off, uh, DK, I, I'm, I'm going to sell the fan base. I'm going to be on this for a long period of time as long as he's here to try to bring people aboard. And I wouldn't I wouldn't say it if I didn't really believe it, but he's an impressive player to watch with what he does in the field. Now he goes about his business. And I just I hope we eventually, as a fan base, Garth, we're not going to get universally there with DK, but that we know that there's uh, – we end up in a place of just being more of an overwhelming majority contingent of the Hawk fans going DK is absolutely awesome and he needs to be a Seahawk forever. Uh, and uh, that we we're not going to pick apart the, the small little limitations there that are in his game. Um, and I believe they're small. Um, Carolina did not impress me. Um, I do believe that, yeah, their defense is legit. You're right about that, Garth. I mean, they can get pass rush. It looks like finally Yeter Gross Mastos, a guy you and I liked a couple of years back who has been slow to develop for them out of Penn State's finally giving them a little bit of more of a dynamic edge rusher to go alongside Brian Burns on the other side. Derek Brown's trying to play for a contract from the inside. Um, so they've got they've got the guys up front, especially on the defensive line, to give you some problems. And uh, Dead did gives the Saints problems, though the Saints offenses look pretty bad in the first two weeks, too. Yeah, right? uh, Frankie Louvu also yeah, was Luvu, in that game. Yeah, Louvu's great. Great as a blitzer all over the place. Um, just seems like one of those linebackers that seems like he's in on every single play. Um, it's going to hurt losing Shaq. Um, uh, uh, Thompson to the injury that they did because that was a very important player on their linebacker core. Not having J.C. Horn, one of the better corners you're going to find out there in the league. There's some places that you can go get after this Carolina defense, but they played us tough last year at home. Uh, there wasn't a lot of points to be had against them. Um, I think we're going to struggle to get up over even like 24 points in this game, but um, there are some vulnerabilities. There are some places that you can go after too. Certainly yeah. better than this uh, Lions defense, that's for sure. Yeah, um, and Garth Knight follows up with another 499. Thank you, Garth Knight. Killer B's thoughts Thanks, on Garth. Bryce Young in your draft scouting and early performance future projection. Good to see Sharbs get rolling. Right, so the other side of that coin would be that Carolina offense. Bryce Young averaging, I think, 4.3 yards per attempt, which is the third lowest for any quarterback ever through his first two games. Mm -hmm. That's per attempt, not per completion. So... Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's um, he's not working with a whole lot on that offense, is he? No, um, I mean they gave up DJ Moore last year, which reduced down that receiving core considerably. Adam Thielen's there, but you know they're trying to rock Adam Thielen and Bar 
the, what that Mingo kid, remember the Mingo kid we looked at out of Mint? Shark. Yeah. Baby shark. Baby shark. Yeah. Like eh, we, you know, he, and he's got, he's got issues with the drops. He's out there. So the receiving core just doesn't have a lot to work with. I don't know how much you can really evaluate young when that is the case where that is at. And that offensive line, I think is first and foremost built to probably run block rather than pass protect. Um, so he's, he has a bit of an uphill battle being, he's already a rookie and dealing with that. I think that I will say at the end of the day, though, my worries with Bryce Young were his ability to hold up from a size standpoint. I still, I think that that still does remain the, my worry with him. And I, I just don't, he doesn't have a lot of size to see everything across the field. I mean, at that size, there are going to be things he just can't see and he's got good mobility, but there were also moments that we saw even last night where it's, you know, he doesn't have Russell Wilson prime mobility. There's, there's times where you can even see now in that game where he's going, Oh, I can get away from this guy. I can get up this football field here. I've got, I've got the space between me and the linebacker and the linebacker. I think it was Demario Davis on the one play I watched an older player in this league who's still fast, still good. But you know, these guys are going to catch you in the sport. You're not in the realm of a uh, uh, Anthony Richardson coming out. You're not in the realm of any of these like top-notch scrambling guys that you're, you have a different level of athleticism to run away. And so he's not going to be able to lean on his legs. I think it's going to really, when it comes down to Bryce Young, I just don't think he's going to be a top end quarterback in this league because of the things that hold him back. Not because he doesn't have strengths, but because of the limiting factors that he doesn't have anything he can do about. Yeah. I mean, neither of us were big Bryce Young fans coming out of that draft. I, no. Um, I didn't even have him in my top 20 on the big board. Now, of course, I knew he was going to go number one overall because everybody had him that way. I I just didn't see it. Um, like, like, you know, perfect example of what you're talking about last night, that play where he fumbles, which that could have been that could have been a drive that completely changed that game, by the way. If they score on that drive, they, they were already in field goal range. Mm-hmm. If they score on that drive, that game completely changes, I think. Yeah. Um, like he's trying to run away, probably like he's very used to doing from Alabama, but he gets chased down from behind pretty easily, fumbles, and then the game just flips. Well, that's what happens too with these guys that are at that 185, 190 pounds, right? Is that when you have a, a, a man that's 285 pounds, 260 pounds running full speed, and he goes in and he runs into contact with a guy going 180, you know, 185, you've got a, a kind of a semi-firm grip on the ball. It's it's a lot more easier to dislodge that first if the the, the pound numbers are kind of working out a little more equivalent. I get a Josh Allen running out in the open field at 230, 235, 240, and you hit him. That ball's not going to get as dislodged as easily. It can look like the guys are getting hit by like a car crash at times when they're that small in the open field. Um, but even just getting basically drugged down, they just, they're, you can feel the lack of size. You can feel the lack of build that they have. Um, like, for instance, the, the Russell Wilson type, who was quicker and faster than Bryce Younger and also had the bigger build to sustain those hits when he had him to hold on to the ball. Um, I, I'm willing to bet Bryce Young will have some of those issues going throughout his career a little bit too because of that. Do you think Do you think it's too late for him to put on some weight and maybe yeah. mitigate that? You don't, yeah. you don't see it? You got to, that when you're at the body style of 5'11, there's guys that are at 5'11 that can add on and become 220, 225-ish. And then there's guys that are at 5'11 at that one, at 190 pounds. Like that's your size. That's how you're, that's just how you're built. Can he add another, in the next five, five, 10, 10 years, is he going to add another five to 10 pounds maybe? Yeah, maybe, but he's still going to be under 200 pounds at that point. He's still going to be incredibly light for the position. Whereas with a guy like Russ, he was just thickly built, right? Thick calves, thick thighs, thick uh, back half. You know, he could, that weight was easily accommodated onto his body. In fact, he had kind of the opposite problems we've seen with him of, you know, actually getting leaned up 
despite the fact that he's a 5'10 kind of guy, you know, but uh, it's been rare. We see those guys that are the slider, lither kind of guys who then add on all that weight. You know, if you go look at Matt Corral right now, who's really light coming out of um, Old Miss, he looks the same size he did coming out of Old Miss. He still looks lively and thin and real spindly arms. You know, it's still that way, you know, so I, it struck me that Bryce is just, that's his build. He's just kind of a thin guy. Yeah. And Garth Knight with another 499. Thank Let's you, go, Garth. Garth. What is the single greatest season by a safety since 2000 in y'all's opinion? So do you think, is he asking this by as a Seahawk or just in the NFL period? I would assume the NFL period. It's got to be Ed Reed in 2003, right? Yeah, I, I would think it's Ed Reed, Garth, because that you have a guy that's not only getting an incredible amount of interceptions, but also the pick sixes. Um, and he was a good tackler on top of it. Um, I think Bob Sanders had a year in there with the Colts that was probably pretty close in his run of being before he got broken down by injuries because he was just such a small guy for how he played. Yeah. That would probably be in contention. Sean Taylor might have a year with Washington in there. Um, I feel like I feel like his uh, God, I feel like he never got to his prime. I really feel like Sean Taylor would have just broken the league and he just yeah. didn't have enough time to get there, unfortunately. Might be true. I, I'm I'm trying to remember this. It's definitely we're getting back in that spot where it's a it's a few years ago. But um, yeah, I'm, Troy Polamalu had the one defensive player of the year. Yeah, I, I think I think Ed Reed's probably the guy at the end yeah. of the day. I think that's probably the 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 right choice to make here on you know an excellent defense, one of the better, the, maybe the best player on that excellent defense. I think you gotta give it to him. He was so he was such a ball hawker, and then he could so well freelance in that ball hawk. Like he didn't have to fit within a structure of a defense; he could just feel it. And you know, the greatest, the, the one of the funnest play descriptions you ever see. I've I've seen Bill Belichick marvel at it. This is where he got Peyton Manning, and Manning had been watching the tape on him doing something. And Manning was like, I know he always does this when that happens, and I can hit this deep route down the sideline because he's going to do this thing. But Reed knew that he was playing Peyton Manning. And so he knew on that one particular style of route that he had to change his way up. And he did it in such a crazy way where he starts the playoff one side, flips his hips, and goes right back the other way blindly just to get to a spot because he knows how Peyton's going to read it. I mean, that's some like next-level 3D chess stuff going on there right there with Ed Reed. And that's Peyton Manning, a guy that you don't usually out-chess match on a football field. Right. Um, he's a phenomenal player, was Ed Reed. Mm-hmm. Uh all right, I think we're all caught up, and um, I mean, you got special teams, I guess. That's the only thing left in this game. Uh, Jason Myers, do we even need to say it? Who could have predicted this, Brendan? Who could have predicted he was going to go into a down year this year? Who could have ever seen that happening? Yeah, you know, before the offseason started, the way I put it was Jason Myers deserves to get paid a lot of money, but I don't know if I want my team to be the team that's paying him that money, and uh, this is why. <laughs> I, I I understand where their thinking was with it, I, but it's you've got a nine-year track record, an eight-year track record that gets out of sample size to me. That gets to a place of, especially when it's very, I mean, he's he's a clock, you know, AM, PM. You can time him. So you, it's like you can see these coming, these kind of season coming down. So uh, we're in for a bumpy ride this year, and hopefully Coach Carroll starts to read that a little bit and going, maybe less less times I settle for the field goal and a few more times I go Dan Campbell and try to actually go for it occasionally. Maybe we do a little yeah. bit more of that. I mean, uh, if that's the outcome here, I'm not that upset about that. I love going for it. 
I do too. I, in fact, I would like to see Coach Carroll show a little more guts though and going for it. I'd like to see him be a little less um, satisfied with field goals at times. And meanwhile, uh, Jake Moody making everything, including a 57-yarder, outdoors, yeah. not in a dome like we were uh, on Sunday. Yeah. Oh, and Myers missed the short kick. The short kick was the one he missed the worst. He freaking yeah. pushed that thing like 15 yards to the left. Going, brother, come on. It's a good snap and everything. Like, we just got to hang okay. on. We're going to have to hold our butts with Myers this year. Uh, Dixon did yeah. good, though. Dixon yeah, boomed Dixon, it. I mean, Dixon's killing it. Uh, Jarek Reed on special teams. Uh, really good. Yeah, Jarek was, Jarek was awesome. I'll tell you, Dixon on that one punt, I loved what he did there in that decision where I know they got a little bit of a return there. But you've got after the sack on Gino, he's kicking from the back of his own end zone and he sends out what must have been a 55-yard punt. And he sacrificed some of the air that he normally puts on it. But that's what I want my punter to do in that moment. Try to just see if our coverage unit can ball out on this one, get down the field there quick, pull down the runner around the 30, 35-yard line, flip the field like that on that kind of punt. Um, I just like to see the aggressiveness there from Dixon to go for it there in that moment. And uh, what else was there? Um, nothing really much in the return game to talk about either way. Sure. So special teams, I don't know if we're getting our money's worth, but there is some good stuff going on there. Yeah. We'll just have to track with Myers, see if he can find his footing a little bit. But the rest of special teams is pretty good. I mean, uh, you had DJ Dallas again call a fair catch where he had about 15 yards of free space up ahead of him. In yeah, this that um, did happen. <laughs> But we knew that that's what we'd get with DJ back yeah. there. Um, you know, maybe Eskridge will take over those duties once he gets back. Yeah. You know, Robbie Gold's a free agent if uh, Myers keeps this up. We have the money. We have some money to spend. Yeah, but didn't we lower down so much of the the cap hit on his first year of his hit for Myers where we're completely signed up for him for at least the first two to yeah, three years of the Yeah, but you can deactivate him. You can deactivate him and say, um, get 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 right, true. and then we'll, you can play again. But we're not going <laughs> to... <laughs> I, I think they'll ride they'll ride that one to the wheels fall off i think yeah. they're good on that one <laughs> uh michael slicker thank you for the 499 thoughts on shane waldron becoming seattle's future head coach love your guys's stuff keep it up thanks yeah, Mike. I, I have a little bit of a theory on this one personally I'm open to it as a potential. His star is on the rise, Michael. And certainly if he continues to do what he did last year and carries that through to this year, there's a really good chance even after this season that he has a, he has a, a head coaching opportunity. And I think here's where the rub is at. I think it's very hard to, first off, we saw this with the Mora Holmgren situation back 15 years ago. This we've got a head coach waiting in the wings, future guy thing. It's kind of hard to pull that off. It's good in theory. You really can't work it out in practice. I also think that Coach Carroll's not looking to move on anytime soon. There's nothing about Coach Carroll's approach or mindset that has left me to believe that he is looking to go away or retire anyway, in any way in the next couple of years. I think Waldron's probably getting a head coaching job within the next couple of years. So I don't think that Waldron lasts um, here long enough to be really a potential option as a future head coach because of that. Yeah, Jody Allen needs to open up the the uh, the wallet on this one if we want to keep Waldron, like what the Cowboys did with Dan Quinn. The Cowboys pay Dan Quinn like he's a head coach, even though he's their defensive coordinator. So Dan Quinn stays, even though he's getting head coaching offers. I think so. You'd have to do something like that because I don't believe he will be here next year otherwise. I think that's hard to replicate that though, Brendan. I really do because Dan's also had as part of a factor in this that he doesn't like particularly the jobs where he was going to have to head. 
you know, I think it was Jacksonville and Denver, which was the two that were sitting at the head of this, that he has an opportunities. And I think he gets, he understands I get a bit of my pick at the litter here. So why should I just do what all of these coordinators do, which is just have to settle for the next job that becomes available. Let me wait for the right spot to prevent itself, pre present itself a little bit. I think Quinn's a bit of the outlier there in doing that. And I don't think that Waldron being a guy who has never head coached before would have that same kind of confidence he could operate from to turn down a head coaching job because he's going, well, I'll eventually, you know, there'll eventually be a better job somewhere else that I'll be able to go get. I, I think that that's going to be tough to pull that off. Yeah, I really like Waldron, but I have a gut feeling that he would be a Nathaniel Hackett, really good coordinator, head coach, that, that little extra isn't there, but that's not necessarily based off of anything concrete. So I'm not condemning that possibility. I'm not against it, but I, I just, I don't know if I see head coach there yet. It's possibility. I will say with Hackett, you know, he got a lot of the benefit of having kind of riding on Rogers coattails there to get to what he got, you know, where how much of this is you, how much is this is Rogers, you know, and like Denver yeah. hiring you is because they're trying to court Rogers to get you to Denver. Um, I think Shane's probably a little bit better than him, but like you said, I don't know for sure. Cause we just, he's never been a head coach and you know, it's, it's hard to predict that type of stuff a little bit. But uh, either way, I just think it's probably a long shot that he would be your future head coach here. Yeah. Uh, okay. I think that's really about it. I think that's all we got to say about this game. It was a, a good game. We got what we needed. We got what we wanted. And, hey, this season, there's no reason why we can't still make this a good season. I know week one was tough, but the, the team showed you on Sunday they are still capable of playing really good in many areas. They really did, man. We This was, uh, to me, again, as important a game, I think, as even though it's in week two, even though there was a lot left of the season, if you win 0-2, I think if you had any any hope this year of being a, a team that could turn itself into becoming a contender and showing you were capable of that, you had to come out of this game with a win. And and then maybe you could have salvaged this year through the rest of the year and found a way to get back to a winning record and maybe even pushed into the back door of the playoffs. But we're talking about contending, Brendan, if we're talking about them taking that step this year of building this team up to arriving at that spot by the end of the season, this was a big win to getting you there. I still do believe that this Detroit team is maybe not likely to win that division, but I think it's them and the Packers are neck and neck there as the one-two teams in that division. They're a solid opponent. They've just gone into Arrowhead and done what they had done. I know that the Chiefs were without Kelsey and Jones, but that's still very impressive to do that. Um, so great win by the Seahawks. It should bring a lot more optimism to the fandom um, in the way that they did pull this one off. And uh, we got another show coming up very soon here. Going to be hosted on the Hawks Nest side, but it'll be on both channels as always. We've got a Carolina Panthers preview uh, cooking, but we'll get to that in a couple of days here. Uh, we had close to 400 people consistently throughout the stream tonight. Thank you, everybody, for coming up. Appreciate yeah. your support. Appreciate the spending the evening with the two of us. Brandon, I want to say I appreciate you coming by to hang out with me. My pleasure, man. Thank you for having me. Um, I should be streaming on Twitch a little later tonight, doing more Starfield, if you want to come watch me over there. And, um, guys, we got our we got the first win. Guys, we got... It, it feels good. We're not exactly where we thought we would be right now, but that let, let what we saw on Sunday just remind you of what this team can do, what they are capable of, what can happen if this team starts clicking and think about how much better it can get. Think about how much better it can be 
and just know we got 15 games left and this this league to me looks pretty wide open there i'm not seeing a lot of dominance from anybody right now i'm seeing a lot of parity i'm seeing a lot of opportunities to maybe sneak ahead of some of these teams without necessarily having to do anything over the top and by this by this time next month it wouldn't shock me if this week if that week one rams game was a thing of the of distant memory so god let's hope so mm -hmm. so we got week three coming up but uh to close the book on this one we got to do it like we always do it's very important cannot be skipped under any circumstance never yeah we gotta say it go hawks go hawks